4-3 is Atwood Unleashed 108, co-hosted by Stephen Knight. We've got a special focus on the sound of freedom tonight. We're going to look at the latest Dan Wooten news, the scandal and the allegations that's been developing here in the UK. And it comes on the back of numerous TV celebrities being outed. It's, there's something in the water, it seems. And these are not m- minor uh, celebrities these are guys at the top of the game and i have indeed watched the sound of freedom it is gut-wrenching heartbreaking it makes your blood boil from the get-go as soon as you see the dad show up takes his kids for the modeling audition they say to the dad he's a bit they're self-conscious why don't you come back at seven comes back at seven they've cleared out all of the modeling stuff they've gone completely they've locked the door the dad comes back the door's locked and he's bam 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 on the door and your heart breaks at that moment and for the next two hours or so as tim ballard is trying to rescue this guy's kids putting his life in extreme danger your heart is out here somewhere you you, you can't even describe and the beautiful thing is that it's shining light on such an important issue of the human transportation of kids into these evil acts committed by adults. This is something that to stop this, with the first thing is to raise awareness and education. And all these evil entities that are rising up to lambast and castigate and debunk this movie, attaching it to conspiracy theories. I say these people are working for the people who do these horrible things to kids, or at the very least, they are enabling them. This is a fight of good against evil, and when it comes to defining evil, it does not get more abominable than what you see these adults doing to these kids in this movie. So no matter what, controversies are around it anyone who's not behind exposing these crimes putting these people away for very long sentences you absolutely need your bloody head testing and let me give you an example because i watched tim ballard get interviewed and he said he watched a kid this is a real life thing he watched a five-year-old this happened to a five-year-old and he saw that kid's body break that was part of his job to watch this so anyone who's against exposing these people you need to think about what you're saying and what you're doing online because this is the most evil industry in the world all right that's my bit uh steven have you got any thoughts on what's been going on here christ sean don't ask me to follow that i'm ready to go to war mate uh yeah (laughs) I've not seen the movie. I'm aware of the discussion around it. I'm certainly aware of the efforts to discredit it. So all that's made me want to do is check out the movie. Whereas before, I think I'd seen the trailer and just filed it away and forgot about it. Now I'm going to definitely seek it out and and form my own views, which is what everyone should do about any piece of art, any piece of entertainment, any documentary, any piece of news. Don't let somebody else tell you what to think about something. Go to it yourself mind open but critical obviously uh, and make up your own mind am i right in believing it's based on a true story do you know or at least that's the claim yeah so tim ballard he was working for homeland and he was in terrorism and they chose him because of his faith because they knew they wanted to assign him to go after the people who watch these videos and they knew he would have to watch the videos and his faith would cushion the trauma 
that these videos would cause him. So, because people are trying to say it's too religious, it's not. It's perfectly contextual. Most of the movies in Colombia, Colombians are predominantly Catholic, and all the religious references are perfectly contextual as far as I'm concerned. He said, watching these movies in real life, every every single one he watched, seared a hole in his brain. And he thought when he was assigned this, these adults doing crimes to kids, what they meant by kids was like 15, 16 year olds. He could not believe it when these videos involve four year olds, five year olds. He's got over a thousand holes seared in his brain now. He's traumatized from this. This is very real. This is something that this guy put the, his life on the line to get the kids back for the dads. And that's what the whole movie is about because in the very beginning, he gains the confidence of one of these adults who watches these videos and pretends that he is one of them and he wants to have one of the kids. And they arrange for a kid to come over the American border and they apprehend the guy who's bringing it over the border. Now, that's the son. Um, you know, disclaimer, plot spoilers here. If you're going to watch it, it's not been released yet. Uh, it's only been released in America. Um, but the son is rescued, but then the son's like, you got to help get my, get the daughter, um, his sister. And his sister gave the kid a little necklace that says St. Timoteo, which is Timothy, which is his name, which was just a coincidence, which happened in real life. So the whole movie then is about trying to get the daughter from these evil people. And just for people watching this, we have to be very careful with our language so we are using human transport, human transportation, instead of, you know, the actual uh, things that these guys are labelled as. Yeah. Interesting. It's definitely on my list. It's, it's funny. So I'm, I'm getting the idea that a lot of people are uh, just put it in the bracket of Christian propaganda. And I suppose if, the, you know, the particulars in, uh, of this are Christian and it is fundamental to the story, it's only right that would be represented on the screen. I suppose there's that, there's that line, isn't there, between showing a, a, an organic piece of entertainment that contains them themes and proselytizing those themes. So I suppose when I when I watch it, which I eventually will, I'll, I'll kind of come to my decision as to whether, whether I'm being uh, lectured to. Uh, in Christian faith or whether it's just integral to the story but it sounds like you're very passionate about it, it sounds like it affected you on a number of levels you want to jump up after watching the movie and do something about it it's, it's kids isn't it it's like what they can't be anything worse and you know touching on that that idea a moment ago of people who have to as part of their job to combat this kind of thing to look at those kind of materials day in day out I don't have that in me. I, I'm not the kind of person who could do that. Yet it's entirely necessary to combat the issue. So how these people get through and do what they do is is pretty mind blowing. Yeah. So just to look at um, what's happening with the movie, the latest before we got a bit of news on Dan Wooten as well. We can get to. Um, so it passed a hundred million. It blew away the mainstream movies like Indiana Jones and Mission Impossible. Barbie, of, of course, has trumped it, though. And it's still going really strong, and that is just on a domestic release. So it's going to be released across the world quite imminently, I believe. 
And Anthony Robbins, the inspirational speaker, he's an executive producer. He was asked to donate and he did a donation. And then a few days later, he called up Tim Ballard and he said, are you guys for real or what? And Tim Ballard said to him, well, why don't you just come to Haiti and watch us rescue kids and arrest human transporters? And Tony Robbins went down there and he watched what they did. And he's become the biggest financial donor now to the charity that's rescuing these kids. So people are saying that, you know, this isn't real. Uh, Tim Ballard is now talking about bringing people on to camera that he's rescued to give the testimonies, but he shouldn't need to do that. Um, it's a $150 billion industry, and they say that it's just surpassed the illegal arms industry, and it's about to surpass the illegal substances industry. And America is the destination market for the majority of it, the videos, and it's a hot spot for the kids. I'm just seeing breaking news. Kevin Spacey found not guilty of committing beep crimes in the UK trial. Yeah. All right, so we'll go over to Dan Wooten then. Have you been hearing anything about these allegations against Dan Wooten, Stephen? Well, I, I very recently caught upon the, the three-part byline expose about him, and it does seem like there is a lot of substance. I think with the Hugh Edwards thing that we covered, a lot of it was online. Well, the majority of it was online speculation. Same with Philip Schofield, so we didn't really have anyone doing any due diligence. Uh, whereas this seems like a, a three-year thorough investigation with plenty of receipts to make some credible accusations uh, about his conduct in terms of soliciting uh, very, you know, inappropriate images from adults, as far as I'm aware, uh, for promises of sums of money and doing this under various pseudonyms. Uh, so it seems like quite a big, you know, a quite credible expose on the man. He doesn't seem to have um, responded directly from what I can see. I think he has started some sort of crowd funder i think gb news is still airing his show and sticking by him so uh this isn't the kind of thing that i think you can just brush off though i think you will have to either take this by you know head legal means um or release a statement at the very least yeah looking at the the byline times which broke this story what we've had since then is that the chair of the commons digital culture media and sport committee has written to the editor of The Sun so it can, quote, set out what investigations are taking place into Dan Wooten after the Byline Times revealed, or alleged, let's say, the presenter hid behind fake online identities to trick and bribe men into revealing compromising beep material. Wooten's employers, The Mail Online and GB News, have still not responded to any questions from the byline times and whether he is still contracted to work for them well he's certainly still contracted to work for gb news because he's active on the youtube channel version of it um yesterday it was mp no a couple of days ago it was mp dame carol dinage who they always wheel out when any kind of investigation is going on that's going to end up going nowhere um wrote to victoria newton editor of the sun yesterday I mean, she was wheeled out for Schofield. She was wheeled out for Edwards, I think. Um, editor of The Sun, about its coverage of the BBC presenter scandal implicating Hugh Edwards and Byline Times investigations into Wotton. And here's the quote. Our role is not to challenge individual stories or editorial decisions, 
but we would be grateful if you could set out the processes by which the Sun verifies any story it chooses to report, especially those where issues of privacy may be at stake. Given the concerns that have been reported about inaccuracies, changing narratives and lack of engagement with some of the parties involved in the case of Mr Edwards, we would also be interested to understand what was done to verify this specific story and what, if any, reviews or discussions are ongoing about the Sun's procedures and reporting in this case and any wider lessons to be learned. So there you've got um, Dame Dynage pretending like she cares and pretending like something's <laughs> going to be done. But from what I've seen, nothing ever gets done when she gets involved. And she's also, by the sounds of it, giving Hugh Edwards a pass. <laughs> the funny thing is they're always shocked and appalled after these things are revealed, uh, yet com completely complicit and with, with knowledge of these things as they're going on. No one seems to raise any alarms about these things as they're happening. They all have to do a reflection and the correct accounting afterwards and pretend they, they were shocked. Is uh, Yeah, it doesn't wash with me either. Got a question from Angela. Do any of us guys think social media is a dangerous place? What do you think, Stephen? I live in Manchester, so no social social media. Social media is a cakewalk in comparison. I think I think social media is best viewed as a tool. It depends how you use it. It's like a hammer. You know, you can use it to build a house or you know smash someone's face in if you're that way inclined. It's a tool, and you should be disciplined in your use of the tool if it's affecting you to an extent that's getting in the way of everyday life. Switch it off. Put it in your pocket. Do something else. And I, after interviewing cops who have worked in areas of arresting adults who are attracted to kids, told me that in the old days, those adults would circulate to where the kids are. So parks, playgrounds, fairgrounds, amusement parks. But now, because of the internet, those adults have a pipeline into the kids' bedroom from anywhere in the world. It's a so, dangerous place for kids, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, yeah speaking as yeah. an adult. Yeah, for sure. That's a De great point. Definitely. Um, I'm just going to ask the chat then, because we did put a poll up about Wooten, and a lot of the viewers thought that he was getting witch-hunted. Um, put a one in the chat if you think Wooten, if you think the allegations are going to pan out, there's going to be evidence, and it, it, it looks like he's done some devious stuff. Put a two in the chat if you think Wooten is the victim of a witch hunt and let's see what comes in and it looks like we've got our guests about to come in as well now for our sound of freedom discussion right so we got ones and twos both coming in i know um quite a lot of our viewers do watch and support gb news um got a few a few more a few more ones than twos come in right there yeah, I think the ones are about 70% right now. Definitely. It's rising about 80% on the ones. All right, Stephen, I shall see you soon, my friend. You take Have care. Have a good chat. See you soon. Cheers. All right, we are going to open with two guests we've not had on the channel so far. We're going to be talking about the sound of freedom. And we have got... YouTuber Lou Valentino, and we've also got Matt Graham, who's got 200k on Insta and 600k on TikTok. So let's go with these guys. Hey guys, huge thank you for coming on. And you I just want to, 
I just want to point out to the viewers then, um, we're going to use human transport and human transporters um, instead of, because there's so many terms that we've, we're not able to use anymore on this channel because we've had problems with YouTube. So we're going we're gonna to have to keep our language a little bit soft. Um, at, in the introduction, I told the viewers, you know, I've watched this movie. I've watched interviews with Tim Ballard. And the part where he talks about every video he watched in real life put a hole in his head. He's got over a thousand holes in his head. And in one of those videos, he watched a kid, I think he said five or six, this was happening to him. And he, he physically saw that kid's body. It looked like it was snapping in half. And when I hear things like that, it, it just tears my heart to pieces. And all these people out there that are going against anything that's exposing this evil industry it just blows my mind because it's being associated with so many conspiracies right now you know no matter what the controversies are around the the company that's produced it the actors etc to expose this evil industry the only way to stop it is to raise awareness that's what mel gibson said and i, I i'm totally about that all right so so guys um let's let's start with matt can you just introduce yourself a little bit to the viewers yeah, so I'm a guy that likes to run his mouth on the internet. Um, I like to talk about um, a lot of different subjects, but primarily um, personal development, mindset, fitness, um, and culture, really. Um, so those are kind of the main subjects I talk about. But when I go on other podcasts like this, I like to dive into uh, some of the subjects that I don't talk about, um, like uh, the sound of freedom and you know more of the... Uh, touchier subjects. So I'll, I'm looking forward to this today because I don't usually talk about this stuff. So appreciate you having me. Appreciate you both coming on. And Lou, do you want to tell the viewers a little bit about you? Oh, uh, yeah, man. Um, uh, right now, uh, I've been talking about Sound of Freedom. First time I heard about it, I was doing a live stream and a lot of people were telling me about this movie coming out July 4th. So I definitely, it's something I talk about on my channel a lot. Uh, I'm actually, you know, uh, on a strike. Uh, I got a strike for talking about it. So I do agree with you with watching our language uh, on YouTube and stuff like that because they're out there and they're coming and uh, <laughs> they're making sure that we know, I guess the the line is drawn on how far you can go in promoting this movie. So yeah, uh, definitely been talking about it and I look forward to being here with you. So thank you for having me. Thanks, Lou. Matt, what got you interested in this subject? In The Sound of Freedom? Yep. Uh, well, so I've been watching the state of the world over the last several years. And, uh, you know, for a lot of my life, I was kind of in the dark on a lot of what was going on um, in terms of the power structures in society. And certainly a lot of this human transporting, um, you know, nonsense that's happening. Didn't know a lot about it. And then uh, 2020 happened. Um, and... We all know how that went and that sort of a lot of things rose to the surface and I started to go down the rabbit holes that you tend to go down during uh, during situations like that. And, and I started to uh, learn more about the human transporting uh, industry. And, you know, when this movie rolled around, I was like, well, we got to see that. Actually, my wife told told me about it initially and then I saw the trailer for it and then I'm like, well, you know, we got to go see that. Plus, I'm I'm a Jim Caviezel, Passion of the Christ fan. So, um, you know, I went and saw it and it was extremely powerful. And I 
think it's doing amazing things for the world in terms of, you know, getting the conversation more mainstream. And it's certainly uh, exposing a lot of people's because, because if you stand on the opposite end of this, if you oppose this movie, if you oppose the idea that we should do more about this uh, issue in the world, then it really says a lot about who you are and where you stand. And I think it's exposing a lot of people. Matt, which parts of the movie affected you the most? Um, I would say, honestly, it was it was the the father of the two transported children, um, and being being able to just imagine what that feels like as a parent. I'm not a parent right now, but I'm going to be and uh just it's not hard to put yourself in that person's shoes especially if you have people that you truly care about and you know it's it's devastating to think that this stuff actually happens in reality and people are actually experiencing this nightmare and um you know that's kind of the part that really impacted me the most yeah just, i'm just going to recap then before we go over to lou about this same question for the viewers so at the beginning you know you see this model Giselle, who in real life is a beauty queen. She's been in music videos. She studied sociology at college. This is the biggest supervillain in the whole movie as far as I'm concerned. But the dad takes the kids to this audition. She says the kids are self-conscious. Can you come back at seven? At seven, the doors are closed. And the dad's like, pound, 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 pounding on the door. Pounds on the next door. Pounds on the next door. And from that moment, your blood is just boiling all the way through the movie as you're praying that Tim Ballard is somehow going to be able to rescue these kids. All right, Lou, going over to you. Um, what parts of the movie affected you the most? Uh, so when I when I went into the movie theater, I, I'm going to be honest, I don't cry. I try not to cry. I try not to show this, the weakness. But I think with this movie, uh, it, you, all the walls get broken down. Uh, immediately, as soon as you enter the movie theater, and the movie, as soon as it begins, uh, you're in for one, right? I watched it twice already. I've taken family members to watch it. I'm, I'm going again as soon as before it goes out. But the part that affected me the most was when Osito, which is the uh, the son of the father, when he gets rescued at the border, and uh, uh, Tim, you know, he he walks up to him, he opens the door, and uh, when he opens the door, the the kid, you could you could just tell he's just frightened. And, uh, you know, he's he's about to be rescued. And uh, that part is heartbreaking. And then also, like, when, when he hands him over the, the necklace that says uh, Timothy, um, that part is, is just, you know, when I tell you, like, the movie is cinematically, like, a really good movie overall. And then when you realize that it's truth behind all of this, um, that, that makes it crazier. And then the ending, when the father reunites with both of them. Right. When they all reunite with each other. So, yeah, man, uh, if you have not seen the movie, uh, just be prepared because you will be a grown man crying. Um, there's no way if you have any, you know, any humane parts in your body and you love God, just, you know, ladies and gentlemen, just be prepared. But, yeah, those are the parts that got me. Matt, so Mel Gibson said awareness is the first step to, you know, get this problem addressed. What do you think the other steps are? Do you think that the justice system needs to do something more stronger with these individuals? 
Uh, yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, the, these, these people need to be, I, I have to watch my words, but um, I think we should take some lessons from our ancestors and how they dealt with people who committed crimes to this degree and do it publicly and create the most large incentive that you possibly can to not participate in these things. I think that the things that should happen to you for doing these crimes should be just as unspeakable as the things that you are doing to those people. And they should be done so publicly. Cause right now it seems that they get slaps on the wrist. You, you know, you, we've seen these, this video it's called sins of our father where the church, they just move him around 20, 30 miles into a new diocese and he's got hundreds of victims and they get high priced lawyers and they're just, you know, the people who get in the life sentences seem to be like the drug offenders who are harming themselves, yet harm kids, and you get a pass. What do you think, Lou? I mean, you're speaking about, uh, especially in this case, $150 billion situation, right? That there is a lot of grab and pull and, and definitely a lot of people up top who, you know, are in control of this at some point. If you're making more money than an airline industry, right? Who, which, by the way, planes fly every day. Right. This is something that we need to use. And if you're making more money than that overall, all around the world and it's happening also in our backyard, um, these slaps on the wrist. Like I know you mentioned um, Kevin Spade. I was keeping track of that earlier. Um, yeah, man. Um, and, and to Matt's point, you know, like our ancestors handled it. I think that's what it should always be. But it seems like in today's time we are finding words and we're finding different things to make people comfortable, more comfortable that are in this space. And it's very confusing to me that people like me and, and different channels are not disappearing and different things are happening because we chose to to speak out on something that we should all come together on. And it seems like instead of all, all of us coming together, it seems like this is creating even more separation. And I never thought in my life that I would be living in a time where something about children um, is controversial. I thought this was supposed to bring us all together, no matter which side of the political scale we're on. So definitely a confusing time. Matt, what do you make of the rumors and the videos of people saying that there's been sabotage at various showings of the movie? It doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me in the slightest. I mean, because... And I think the people that are doing this aren't necessarily in favor of human transporting. I think that they just fall for the nonsense that the media tends to pull, which is word association. And they will associate something like human transporting with with Jim Caviezel and certain conspiracy theories. And, and, and they make these connections and people obviously being lazy consumers of information they just take it at face value and they assume that sound of freedom is conspiracy and i think the people that are sabotaging these showings the people that are going in here and disrupting this process is they're just they're just falling for the nonsense i don't think that they have i don't think they understand what they're doing necessarily but you know i 
you know, I'm maybe maybe it's naive of me to attribute incompetence to to something that could be attributed to malice, but I don't think there. I don't. I think that if people knew the gravity of the actual situation that was happening in in, in this country and around the world, um, they probably wouldn't be doing that. What do you think about the sabotage uh, videos, Lou? Well, I've seen uh, many of them. Obviously, a lot of them are coming from TikTok and a lot of people raising awareness about the movie, but also raising awareness that there's the AC is now being turned off while they're watching the movie or there's you know fire alarms going off. So to Matt's point, I think he makes a great point. I think a lot of these people, they're just unaware, right? They're unaware of how big of a deal this movie is because the first thing they heard about the movie is that it was a conspiracy theory from CNN, right? CNN... They were one of the first ones to pretty much go on and say that this is, you know, I don't want to say, I don't want to trigger the algorithm, but they just said that this was some type of crazy conspiracy theory and that it's not real. And that it's like, you know, and we saw Rolling Stone and, and different big time news articles come out with hit pieces on this movie. Um, and those people are probably reading stuff like that. They're reading like, hey, uh, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, this movie is a conspiracy theory. It's for dad with brain worms and all these different things. So I think that those people, they don't even care because they don't have the the competence or they don't have the, they're just not, they're just not, it's not in them to be aware because they've been programmed so much to just have such a, you know, a dislike and distaste for anyone on the right or anyone who's Christian that they don't even want to give the movie a chance. So they're just sparking up different things to make sure people don't go into these movie theaters. So. so viewers wherever you are in the world watching this whether it's youtube facebook twitter linkedin we are live with matt and lou discussing the sound of freedom whatever questions you have just put them in the comments or the chat below the video and we will put them to our panelists and the first question is from linda glass I'll give this to you first matt why is there such a huge backlash and all the propaganda against this film well, I think that there are two main reasons, and I think the first of which is, as Lou alluded to, it is a multi-billion dollar business. It's a multi-billion dollar industry, and if this, if this gets dealt with the way that it should be dealt with, a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money, and which leads to the second point is it, it, people are going to find out who is receiving all this money, who is paying for these services, who the customers are. And I think if that got out as well, it would, people's bank accounts would be the last thing on their mind. And so I think that the people that are criticizing this movie at the top, not necessarily the reporters, not necessarily the people that are sabotaging these movies, not the lower level individuals, but the people at the top that are making these orders, I think they have a lot of skeletons in their closet. They have a lot to do with what's going on. And if that ever got out, then we're going to have a lot of problems. And as Mel Gibson said, awareness is the first step. And so if people are aware, then we start trying to do stuff about it. And so they are trying to limit awareness so that the, tar the no nobody goes digging into what they have in their closet. Thanks for keeping names out of it, Matt. That's how they get these videos taken down. So I'll hand this over to Lou. Um, why is there such a huge backlash and all the propaganda against the film? 
Um, listen, uh, once again, uh, he had it right on the nod with that, uh, with the with the uh, the money that is being made and and the people associated with it. Obviously, um, you look at the people that control the media and the people that the major shareholders and all these different people that are just in control with all this money uh, that's being made. And you 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 don't have the proof, but you kind of could figure, hey, they're definitely making some type of phone calls to make sure that this is not getting shown or being spoken about. And I think number two is the ties to the people that have been trying to do something about it. When you look at the 45th president of the United States, you look at somebody that in 2018, if I'm not mistaken, sat down with Tim Ballard at the White House and gave him an opportunity to not only, uh, you know, come to the White House, but give him the stories uh, before this movie was even in production, with before any of the conspiracies that now people are associating the movie to. So I think that when when people are sabotaging a movie like this, is because they fear that, especially coming into the season that's coming up, right, where, where people have to get elected, you look at the people that were actually trying to do something about it, and all the fingers point to number 45. And I don't think people want to point the finger at anything good at number 45. This guy had Tim Ballard at the White House telling the stories, bringing awareness, signing bills against human transporting. So people... They just want to ignore it. They want it to go away so bad. They want it to go away so bad. You could just tell the way people are like trying to not only sabotage it, but the way these corporations are fact checking it and all these different things. I'm just like, I'm in awe, but it's very obvious to what they're doing. Yeah. And just to expand on that, then the president of the United States uh, released this was back in what was it, 2019, something like that. There is an urgent humanitarian issue. My administration is committed to leveraging every resource we have to confront this threat, to support the victims and survivors, and to hold human transporters accountable for their heinous crimes. And he signed the Abolish Human Transportation Act in December, strengthening programs supporting survivors and resources for combating it. He signed the Frederick Douglass Transportation Victims Prevention and Protection Reauthorization Act, authorizing $430 million to fight this. He signed the Transportation Victims Protection Act, Section 1312, establishing new prevention, prosecution, and collaboration initiative to bring human transporters to justice. And in addition to those efforts, Congress needed to pass legislation to strengthen border security to prevent human transportation in all forms so it looks like he did way more than any of the others all right so next question is from justin selvi um I'll give this one to you first matt again um how deep does this go and what we what can we do to expose and stop it yeah so uh i think it goes way deeper than people think it does. I think that a lot of the people involved are household names. And if, if, if the truth came out, it would change your opinion a lot about, about a lot of the people that you probably respect. Um, so that's the first thing. And the second part of the question, what can we do to expose and stop it? I think that what we're doing right now is certainly a massive part of that, right? Like going on our platforms, having these conversations and 
bringing awareness uh, to it beyond just the movie. But I also think that, you know, other, other forms of media are going to be effective in, in creating awareness, not just about this issue, but other issues. Right. So I think what Tim Ballard and angel studios and, and the people that created this movie, I think they're right on the money with how you actually start solving a problem. You, you, all art inspires culture art inspires awareness and just going back to that same quote like awareness is the is going to be the key now one thing that i want to point out is that when a lot of people are going to see this movie if you haven't seen it yet or if you have seen it like you have this you have this response to do something about it and to protect your children from it and we a lot of us want to take the most drastic measures in order to do so. And so I remember when my wife and I got out of the movie, she was like, how do we make sure our kids are never exposed to this? And what worries me is that people will, st- will, will have a fear response and take too drastic of measures, such as putting tracking chips in their children I'm not saying that that's going to be something that's proposed or not proposed down the road, but you know, it's, it's, it's a visceral response that you have and, and people tend to want to take insanely drastic measures in order to protect their kids as they, sh- as they should want to, but we have to make, sh- we have to focus more on educating our kids about this reality and educating our kids on how to take preventative measure measures than we do, you know, sheltering them from the reality of it and, you know, tracking our kids. I think that that's not the the way we move forward. I think that we try to raise a generation of people that can be aware of these things and defend themselves and, and take measures uh, in other ways. So that's just something I wanted to point out because I know a lot of people are probably going to start being like, how do we, how do I make sure like I got to watch my kid at all times. And like, there's going to be a lot more helicopter parenting and like, that's fear. Like we can't operate from a place of fear like that. We have to just Look at the reality and say, okay, what what can we teach our kids? What can we teach our parents in order to uh, navigate this better? Well said, Matt. And I just want to give a real-world example before I go over to Lou with the same question. So last year, two of our podcast guests, maybe some of the viewers have seen this clip. They went from Manchester to London to visit family members they were by one of the main stations. They had their kid in a seat strapped in. And this was a busy uh, road. And the woman, the female, Kira, turned around for a few seconds. And when she turned back around, a human transporter had unbuckled all of the seat uh, things and grabbed the kid and was holding the kid and lifting the kid out of the seat. And she said, what the hell are you doing? And then her partner is a big guy, six foot three. A second human transporter just walked straight into him, threw his arms up and said, welcome to London, to distract him, to enable the other guy to get away. This is serious, organized crime. The movie shows this happening, you know, in Colombia, and people think this is so far removed from London or, you know, major cities in the West this can happen in the blink of an eye anywhere. If she hadn't turned around in time, can you imagine how that story would have ended for that kid? So just 
giving that anecdote there to reinforce Matt's point, which is about adults being more aware of it. And if you are a parent, I was almost a parent today. Actually, we were in the hospital, but the, the kid didn't come out. We've got a, little, a few more weeks to go, it looks like. Um, adults to be more vigilant about these situations because it just takes a few seconds for you to relax and look away and the kid could be gone. All right, Lou, I'll recap on the question then. So it's from Justin and it's how deep does this go and what can we do to expose and stop it? Uh, you know, m most of the time I, I try to talk about this stuff, obviously, on Rumble because it does go deep. <laughs> it goes extremely deep, too deep for YouTube, in my opinion. But um, as far as, you know, what can we do about it? I mean, this is, you know, like you guys said, this is this is the best part, right? It's the, the, the most that we could do is bring awareness by actually talking about it and actually using our platforms to come together. I know that uh, uh, on Twitter, if I'm not mistaken, at some point, Elon Musk is going to actually premiere the movie on Twitter. Um, and he's also someone that, that has reposted it. He has so many followers and stuff like that. And I think that that's amazing. Uh, Mel Gibson coming through and doing, you know, being one of the only celebrities to really come out and speak, speak out and really bring awareness. Um, there is a foundation, if I'm not mistaken, from Tim Ballard himself that people can go and donate to. That That's good. That's something that you could do about it. Um, not going too far, not being too paranoid, but then, in my opinion, not being too paranoid can also be not a good thing. I think the paranoid, uh, only the paranoid survive. I, I, I believe, I like, that's how I live my life. You know what I mean? Like, only the paranoid survive. And I think in a situation like this as a parent, um, when you go see the movie, it just to be aware that these things can happen in a second. In the beginning of the movie, you have literally real life footage of how fast it happens. And it happens quick. Like it happens, you could be taking a nap and, and you could be caught slacking. And next thing you know, your kid is just is gone. So you just have to be extremely careful uh, as a parent. But I think the biggest part about it is how it how it happens in our backyard, right? In the United States of America. Right at our southern border, right? Who knows what's happening in the northern border, right? But these things are happening, and they're happening here. This is like the mainland for it. This is like the 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 main destination. So I think that once you're aware of that, and once you find out foundations and people that you can talk to and people that you can support, I think that those are the best steps to take, in my opinion. Lou, do you think that America is the main? destination because america is one of the wealthiest countries in the world so they can make the most money transporting the kids to americans well i mean i, I remember tim Ballard speaking about it in the movie and i gotta watch my words here but i know that we were number one in uh child pictures the or whatever the crazy i don't want to i don't know how to go around that but i know that we were number one on that as a country which is very alarming right i didn't know that i didn't know that the united states is number one at such a, you know, what? Like at, at that rate. So just even finding that out, in my opinion, I, I was very like, I was like, but what else are, are we not being told? What else do I not know? Right. Because he worked for Homeland. He knew. Right. He also was somebody that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in 2001, after the Twin Towers happened, he went from. I remember he had switched over to working at the border. And that's when he started to find these things out. And, you know, even then, Homeland um homeland security and even the military or whoever is in charge of the border different things like that were they're not even believing him in his stories 
right? They were not even backing him up, right? He had to quit his job to go to Colombia to, you know, to, to go on this mission. So it's a lack of empathy. It's a lack of actually trying to go and doing it. Uh, but yeah, so I think that the main destination is the United States for a main reason is because this is, you know, this is where the money is. And I think that this is where a lot of skeletons are being hidden. I think if you open up the closet to a lot of people's homes and you go into the closets, man, there's going to be a lot of stuff there, man. I'm telling you, but the money rules. And I guess that's really what's controlling it from not being, you know, over the top and really exposing everybody. In my opinion. Yeah, yeah, there came a point in the movie where Tim had to make a decision. He was going to lose his pension. He was going to go out on his own and just do it as a citizen or come back, have a safe life, live happily ever after with his pension. And he said to his wife, what should I do? And she said, you know, when you meet your maker and he asks you about your kids, about these kids, the missing kids, what are you going to say? And right then and there, he just knew he had to follow it through. And the level of risk he takes to go deep in the jungle in Colombia where there's no law and order. If you've not seen it yet, it's going to blow your mind. So, Matt, why do you think the U.S. is such a hot spot for these uh, pictures and videos and activity? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think Lou is exactly right. It's where the money's at, you know. It's the where the where the... Richest country in, well, some degree, the richest country in the world. And uh, I think that a lot of the people that are interested in this, uh, they are all, not all of them, obviously, but many of the most powerful, influential people in the world probably have this in common. It might be a prerequisite, some would say. Uh, and if we operate under that assumption, it would make sense that they are the highest bidder and there's a lot of them. And, you know, very few countries can beat that in terms of, it's not a competition you want to win, but apparently we are. There does seem to be a disproportionate amount in high places of these individuals. We interviewed a guy called Darren Jeffrey. He was getting sentenced for a crime and they switched his judge at the last minute. It was like a drugs crime or something. And the judge that they switched it to was a judge who'd done things to him when he was a kid. And the judge ended up giving him like over two decades when he thought he was going to get a much lower sentence. So it does seem that these people are embedded. There's a disproportionate amount of them in higher society. All right, so we've got a question here from Moonbeep. I'll give this one to you, Matt, first. Do you think Mel Gibson's life will be in danger after the release of his upcoming documentary? I don't know. It's hard to say. It's hard to say because there are certain people that are known to be opposed to certain things that if you were to make their life in danger, so to speak, uh, it would be too obvious of a move. And I think the people that they tend to delete are the more uh, the more subtle people that that aren't in the spotlight as much. It's kind of like uh, Mel Mel Gibson might be too big for that, if that makes sense. It would it would be too obvious, and uh, they would show their hand by doing so. 
What do you think, Lou? Well, I think um, I don't think people's lives are in danger as much as before. Obviously, what we know, you know, presidents and different things like that used to just, you know, what I'm saying. Whenever um, they were opposing such a big, like, military uh, industrial complexes or anything like that, but I think that in today's time, the way to put someone out, um, trying to watch my words here, or to character terminate somebody is that you ter- you character terminate somebody you you attack their character you you hit them with hit pieces you make them not watchable or likable to the uh to i would say 75 percent of america right when about 25 to 30 percent of america like us know that that's what they're doing most of the time people just don't care enough to research that hey uh there's a reason why number 45 is being you know um attack this way or maybe this is why people are so i don't think that his life in particular but i think that once again uh the hit pieces are going to start coming out obviously they coming out with tim ballard jim Cavizu, all these different actors that were in the movie um they're being hit right where they're being discredited and i think that in today's time that's the most important part is can you continue to do what you love if they have terminated your character to majority of the united states and, and the world with these articles and hit pieces. So <clears throat> I think that, excuse me, I think that uh, the, the documentary is coming out in January. And yeah, I think Tony Robbins is involved and I think that is going to be a big deal. I think it's going to be good, but I think that I'm not sure if it's going to go as far as we think it is because of the fact that it's based on Ukraine and it's based on different things that are happening that I don't think that, yeah. I don't think I think that it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough for it to get out there. I mean, we obviously we're strong enough mentally to know what's coming and hold the line. But I don't think a lot of a lot of America would turn their back on, you know, people like Mel Gibson, as they already have. Thanks for weighing your words, guys. You're doing a fantastic job. We're trying. Yeah. Yeah. And just to add on. uh, So Tony Robbins is an executive producer of Sound of Freedom you know, when he was encouraged to donate, he did a donation and he called him up, called Tim Ballard up and said, are you guys for real? And Tim Ballard says, well, come to Haiti with me and watch us free some kids and arrest some transporters. And Tony Robbins went down there. He watched the operation unfold, saw the results, and he has become the single biggest donor now to Tim Ballard's charity and he's had him on his youtube channel it's a great interview there's a lot more details in there i urge people to watch some of these interviews with tim ballard so you can see how he puts in context what happened in the movie with what happened in the real world and it's pretty damn close all right so next question is from victoria alice give this to you first matt do you think the barbie hype is to distract us from this I don't think I, I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't say that Barbie is hyped up because of the sound of freedom. I think that it's probably a coincidence at most. Um, do I think that there are agendas when it comes to Barbie? Absolutely. Do I think that is a, it is a response to sound of freedom? I think the factors that would play into that actually happening are way too complicated and they would have to change release dates and like it's I don't think I don't think there's much there. But I do think that Barbie is 
propaganda and that the hype, the, the, the massive marketing campaign is certainly part of getting an agenda out there. Is it a response? Probably not, in my opinion. Lou, do you think the Barbie hype is to distract us from this? Um, no. Uh, well, I think that, um, what was the movie coming out uh, at the same time as, um, I don't watch Oppenheimer. These no, no, no. Before then, uh, at the same time, I think two days, it came out like two or three days after. It was a Disney movie as well. It's not coming to mind right now, but it was- Indi it, Indiana Jones Indiana or Mission Impossible? Yes. Yeah. I think that it was Indiana Jones um, because you got to understand, right? Disney um, owned the rights to Sound of Freedom for like five years. Um, and I think that, you know, they were trying to block it or not let it come out. So in my opinion, uh, the Indiana Jones was supposed to basically swipe it, you know, or drown it or, you know, whatever. And it didn't. And I think that that was the, the main thing. But I think Barbie overall, it's supposed to be a distraction to the world. I mean, a movie, of, like, <laughs> you want to talk about like peak feminism and where it's going. I think that Barbie is like, it's bigger than like trying to beat out Sound of Freedom. It's like trying to bring out a crazy um, or like just a crazy events of of woke agenda, in my opinion, of how women and how men and all these different things should behave and how they should look. So I think that is bigger. I think that um, I think that people want to go watch Oppenheimer, if I'm not mistaken. I, I want to go see it, but people, I'm talking about grown men wearing pink and, and different things. Like I saw the craziest things at the movie and they're really promoting it. I think that that's the part, like the promotion behind it, the billboards, when you enter the movie theaters, like pink balloons everywhere. I'm like, <laughs> Only if they had the same energy for a movie that actually mattered, but that's that's where that's the money. That's where we live at. And I think that I think that these people, you know, they're like going all out promoting a movie, a Barbie movie over a movie that actually matters. And I think that if there's anything I took from this weekend, it was that. Yeah, so they estimate that the Barbie movie cost 130 million to 140 million dollars to produce versus sound of freedom which cost 14 and a half million so do you guys think that some of these hit pieces have come about because the movie moguls have seen this more independent production put them to shame so they've tried to debunk it just to get you know their narrative back on track i'll ask matt first uh could you repeat the question i'm sorry yeah do you think that because barbie you know, it costs like 130, 140 million to produce versus Sound of Freedom is only 14 million, which has probably embarrassed some of these movie moguls. Do you think some of these hit pieces have been put out by the movie moguls to try and, you know, get them back in favor of what they're doing? No, I think the hit pieces are what we said they are. I think they are, I think they're a way to discredit the subject matter of the movie and the and the validity of the movie uh because they don't want people to be aware of that of, of human transporting i think i think that's what it boils down to um you know I th money ultimately i mean i mean we're, we're, that might not be true i was gonna say money ultimately wins in the movie game but um yeah no i don't think i don't think so i don't think so Anything to add to that, Lou? Um, I, I guess, I guess, yeah, to a degree. Um, I feel like uh, a lot of 
you gotta understand like the movie budget was only 14 million it was it was shelved for over five years six years it was made seven years ago shelved for five so the fact that the movie has come out and i guess almost a month made over 100 m's um that's that's a big deal especially to the movie industry right um and you got to also understand hollywood is on strike <laughs> so imagine mm -hmm. hollywood the way they're feeling overall with all these writers and now the, the you know sag after and all these people joining the strike um it was a big l and a huge w for uh conservative libertarian audiences that you know want to bring awareness to this i think that i could see you know people in hollywood or once again rolling stone and um all these different articles and that that were written are they're they're coming from a place of this movie's not supposed to succeed we're not supposed to talk about this uh like all these religious people and different things you know like, which i don't think the movie was religious at all i think the movie was really good for anybody but i think that they took a major l and those hit pieces are going to come regardless they're just they're always going to be there because people are always going to you know want to get back on track and not let anyone from the right or anyone in even middle right win so it was an l for them i'll be honest yeah, when I spoke to my dad, who watches BBC News and stuff about the movie, he said, isn't this the one with this religious extremism in it? And then after I watched it, I explained to him, you know, I thought it was perfectly contextual. A lot of the movie was set in Colombia, where it's predominantly Catholic. I've written five books about Escobar. I know how religious... The people are out there, you know, the, even the, the drug uh, transporters had their own patron saint. So the references to religion in the movie were perfectly contextual. And the fact that they chose Tim Ballard to look at these images, one of the reasons is because his faith would give him a cushion against the trauma he was going to experience when looking at these videos. So that's why they chose people of faith for that specific job. All right, so we've got a question here from Jason English. Um, you know, you, earlier on you said that, that uh, Musk is going to err it. So Jason English is wondering about you guys' general opinion of Musk in this question. Musk is a hard one for me to figure out. What's his game? What do you think, Matt? I am just about as clueless as, as Jason here. I don't know. It's like one... One week, I think that he's a good guy, and then he does one thing, and I'm like, I don't know, I don't know. And, and I think that he is teetering the line perfectly. If that's his objective, is to confuse people and, and make them unsure of where he stands in reality, uh, he's doing a very good job of that because I have a hard time pinpointing the guy. You know, my my gut tells me that he is probably he probably doesn't have the best intentions simply because he is he is investing in uh, Neuralink and, um, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I, I am just about as clueless, so I don't have a great answer. Um, I, time will certainly tell. And, uh, yeah, maybe Lou has maybe Lou has some better insight. <laughs> what do you think, Lou? Uh, as <laughs> Elon Musk, it, 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 he is a tough one. Um, I've gone back and forth with my my um, subscribers and supporters with this. Uh, when he first bought Twitter, I thought he was, you know, I thought it was one of the best moves ever because he the, the things that Twitter files uncovered was amazing. 
Uh, and the fact that he had independent journalists, you know, digging deep into the files of Twitter, I thought that was amazing. Um, the way he's running Twitter, uh, I think is cool. I think it's good. But yeah, he's very, it, like the Neuralink stuff, definitely, right? From a, from, I guess, a religious standpoint or however you want to look at it, if you're not religious, it's just that invention alone. Um, it's things that have been predicted. And it's things that have, I feel like these people are like, I don't, I don't know how aware they are that they're like fulfilling like prophecies. I don't, I don't know how aware they usually are with this and with the role that they're playing uh, with the most holy book in the world. I I don't know if they're um, as aware as I would think they are. Like some of these people are playing right into that role of these characters that are supposed to be here at some point. So I believe he's one of those, and I believe that he has good intentions um, on a lot of things, but I'm still not 1,000% sure. I think the guy is can get very weird sometimes, but I think that he is one of the only billionaires who has done something for all of us in this world, and that is acquiring and a, a, a I guess, the most popular app in the world, which is Twitter, and trying to really expose, like, hey, you know, some of these voices that are very important are being shot down, as you can see, you know, obviously on YouTube and, and different, you know, Facebook and things like that, there is censorship happening, right, to a certain particular group. And I don't like it, right? Even if right now on Twitter, there's people still, you know, being banned and stuff like that here and there, which once again, gets a lot of people to question him. But I don't know. I think that with him, like Matt said, only time could tell. Yeah, and if you don't mind me adding just shortly to that. Uh, yeah, so talking about the prophecies and whatnot, that's what that's that's the thing that makes me the most confused because if you actually read the prophecies and you there's supposed to be this main character that everyone likes and everyone thinks is a good guy and he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. I don't know. You know, I, yeah. I, I, I sit there with you on that. It's like, I like what he's doing, but that could be part of it. So, you know. Yeah. Quite a few of my colleagues who were deleted on Twitter have been reinstated. Do you think Twitter has improved Matt since Musk took over? From an algorithmic and growth perspective? Um, no. I don't think that I, I think it's harder to grow on that platform. Do I think it's objectively? Uh, do I think it's a net positive because you can actually say what you want now? Yes, obviously. I think that I think that alone makes it one of the best platforms, if not the best platform, because you can actually say what you want. Um, but you know, uh, I'm interested to see how this whole rebranding works out. You know, changing it to X, and um, I think that is going to hurt them personally, but we'll see, you know, he has, he has certain plans and he's mentioned things about it becoming a big part of the financial system, which is another thing that was prophesized, but you know, we'll see. What, what do you think Lou? And also do you think that rumble is the antidote to a lot of this stuff? I think, uh, I think out of all the platforms, I think, <clears throat> Rumble has the most potential because it actually does support free speech. 
obviously there's some things that just happened recently that a lot of people are like maybe it doesn't but i do think that i can get on rumble and like we don't even like if we were on rumble right now we wouldn't even have to speak in code um so i think that it's a great alternative to what youtube is i think that youtube is the best platform overall as far as our algorithm goes as far as potential goes i mean everyone that ever follows me and and goes over to rumble I think that they found me on YouTube first. And I think that YouTube is where the masses go. And I think people are have been used to it for more than a decade now. But I think that Rumble is the alternative to this, right? And I think that it has a lot of potential, but I'm not sure about Rumble. But I think it does have the most potential. And as far um to go on Matt, Matt's point about the X, that's just another weird thing that the guy is doing. Like, why? Why an X, bro? Like, what, what are you doing? So it just this guy is always doing something that makes you just take a little step back and just like, hold on now, what this you know? Because the conspiracy realist in me, right? Um, I just I want to go and I don't want to be like, ah, right, let me go dig into this X. What does this really mean? So yeah, he's always doing something weird, right? That makes you really question what his intentions are, who he is, and I don't know. As far as Rumble goes, I love Rumble. Uh, a lot of people who channel disappeared. Are now going over there but uh it can easily become an echo chamber for many people on the right which i i'm in fear of that i would love for more people on the left and more people in the middle to go over there but why would they when they have you know nobody getting banned that they love to watch on youtube so it's, it's a hard thing right now of what the next five years are going to look like but prayers up to to rumble i hope that it, it grows and it gets better We've just got 10 minutes left with our Sound of Freedom panelists, Matt and Lou. So wherever you are watching this in the world, this is your last opportunity to get any questions in. Put them in the comments, put them in the chat, wherever you're watching it, below the video. And we will squeeze those in before we get on to the next guests. So a few questions have come in that I can't put on the screen because of the verbiage. Um, I'll, t I'll try and give them to you guys, but tone down. So we got one from Pamela here. Uh, do you think keeping borders open was done partly for transportation, etc., Matt? Partially, yeah. Do I think that's the primary reason? No. I think, I think sure, there might be some – it might be a feature of opening the border, uh, but I don't think it's the intended purpose of opening the border. I think opening the border was really just about importing voters uh, and, and trying to trying – to, stay in power that to me is the is the primary reason what do you think lou um yeah man i think matt hit it out the park with that one i think that i think i'm i'm 50 50 on it and the other 50 would be that um you know the push for you know having no id voters and all these different things that the left is trying to pursue right is like all these people that are coming in are being let in by them so then they could turn around and you know, vote for, you know, the party that is doing them all the favors in the world. And I think that my family is, you know, one of um, one of many families that has fallen for that trick, right, where they, you know, they feel like they they owe them everything um, because they were let in and, and given and fed. And, and, and they have a very, very strategic political, you know, way of doing it. And it's been happening for for a long time. So I think that has to do with it. But I do think that, once again, like, I think that the open borders thing, it just, that's the deepest part of it. I think the transporting is the deepest part of it. And I think that, like I said, number 45 saw that that was happening 
heard all these stories and he wanted to make sure that once again, how do we, uh, how do we ensure that we can close it and we can build it and we can actually build infrastructure to, that's why he had people come and basically letting him know like, this is happening. What can we do about it? And that's something to do about it. But with the character termination analogy that I was giving to you, what they called, they called it every every name in the book. You're being a racist, right? And I don't want to say the word, but you're being this, you're being that. And I'm telling you, it had nothing to do with that. It's kind of like the Jason Aldean song, Aldean song, right? They're associating it to a certain particular group because they want it to be about that so bad instead of looking at the actual issue that he's even talking about in the first place. So I think that, yeah, build that wall, man. You're getting asked for your thoughts on Angel Studios. Before I give this question to you, though, I'm just going to read uh, some of the basics of what Angel Studios is. So it says here on the wiki page, it's an American media company and film distribution studio based in Provo, Utah, operating over-the-top video-on-demand service Angel Studios. It's a streaming service available worldwide and can be accessed via web browsers or via application software installed on smartphones, tablets, computers, and smart TVs. They use equity crowdfunding to finance its original productions by offering individual investors the opportunity to purchase shares in the company and its titles. Content produced by Angel Studios is distributed for free on their own streaming service. Some titles are also available in other third-party streaming services, as distribution deals. Notable titles that Angel Studios has produced through crowdfunding include The Chosen, Dry, Bar Comedy, The Wing, Feather Saga, and Tuttle Twins. The largest crowdfunded entertainment project in history um, was The Chosen, which raised 10.3 million until March 2023 when it was surpassed by David which raised 49.7 million. So there was a crowdfunding component to the Sound of Freedom. So what is your thoughts, Matt, on uh, Angel Studios? Yeah, so I've been a fan of The Chosen for uh, over a year, maybe two years at this point. And uh, I think that they are obviously a net positive to our culture, to our society. We need more, you know, if you ask me, like, what was my grand plan and, and like, you know, what I want to do in the future. Like I wanted to do kind of what angel studios is doing. I want to create art that reflects more of those traditional American Christian values. And, uh, I think they're doing a great job at that. I think that they are, they're obviously having a major impact. And so I like what they're doing. The only question is, can they retain those values on the, on the long haul? You know, can they, can they continue to grow? Can they continue to expand without sacrificing the values that got them where they're at currently. And so that's going to be the main question because, you know, you see it all the time where you see it in small companies, big companies, you know, media all over the place where as you expand, as you grow, you start to lose what made you, you. And, um, I hope that doesn't happen. I hope they continue to, um, I hope they continue to, create art that reflects these values and we can show our kids these these creations and i think that if if they do that then it's gonna it's gonna have a, a massive butterfly effect and i think it's going to be extremely positive um so i hope that they can i hope that they can maintain that 
Lou, what's your thoughts on Angel Studios? Yeah, I hope that they can continue uh, this journey. Um, like I said, the chosen. I haven't uh, personally watched the chosen just yet. A lot of people have been telling me to watch it. Before watching it, I think there was a particular flag on set that a lot of conservatives were mad about. Um, so yeah, speaking of Matt, that can easily once again things can easily just go left, uh, especially with like an Angel Studios that. Um, I think that what's getting them here is the fact that they're the counter, they're the counterculture. They're they're what we are starving for. We're starving for movies like this. Like we we're tired of whatever it is that Hollywood has been pushing. We're tired of all these agendas. We want to see you know good stuff that we can actually show our children and be be proud of. So I think that what they're building and by picking this movie up and and funding it and 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 being a part of it, I think that what they're doing is showing that. No matter what the conspiracies or the the hit pieces are on this particular movie, we're gonna pick it up regardless because we believe in it, and we're we're I think that it shows that they have morals at this particular point to actually you know I don't know like I said anything could change at any moment you know the bigger they get maybe the more opportunities and then the more left they go um or they stay in the middle and you know so let, let's see let's see what the future holds but i'm excited for it you know what i'm saying because i, I wanted to be an actor uh in my life i wanted to that was something that i wanted to but as the industry you know kept i don't know i just thought that it was going too far to many things that i don't like so this is something that helps me hey you know maybe christian people or whoever can be actors you know maybe we can be successful here so it's a space created that is being amplified by a lot of people, that, uh, conservatives at least. Fantastic, guys. You've nailed it today. Matt, can you tell the viewers where they can find and support you, please? Yep. It is not Matt Graham on every single platform. And Lou, where can they find you and support you? Yeah, just Lou Valentino uh, on everything. Uh, right now, we're going to do some live streams on Rumble. I'll be back from the strike very soon. All right. And the guests... Links are in the description box below this video, so please go and check out her work. Wish you all the best in what you're doing, fellas. Take care. Cheers. Take care. All right, man. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. All right. I know a lot of people were asking where they can watch it, and um, there has been a release. Angel Studios is launching Sound of Freedom in a bunch of international markets. And we have got South Africa from August 18, Australia and New Zealand, August 24. It's going to be in all these territories from August 31st. Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Belize, Panama, Colombia, Venezuela, Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay, Bolivia, Chile, Peru, Ecuador and Costa Rica. And the UK is going to be almost the last. The film... Uh, the film released for the UK and Ireland from September the 1st. No, Spain's going to be the last. Spain ain't getting it until October the 11th. So they are the official release dates. And now we're going to bring Stephen Knight back in. And we are continuing the Sound of Freedom discussion with our next guest. So I'll hand it over to Stephen. Cheers. Thank you, sir. Hey. Hello there. Welcome to Outward Unleashed. How are you doing? I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So I know your YouTube channel is, uh, is it Coach Archives or Coaches Archives? Coaches Archives, yes. Um, 
Great. And what do we call you this evening? Uh, everybody calls me coach. Coach, that works for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if you just uh, heard what Sean was just seeing then, but I mean, saying then rather that this film hasn't received uh, sort of international distribution yet. The UK is right down the pecking line in, in terms of when we're going to get it. I haven't seen it, which puts me at a slight disadvantage here. I, I assume you have seen the movie, The Sound of Freedom? Yes, I have. And so what are, your, what are your initial thoughts, if you could summarize a, a non-spoilery review for those of us who haven't seen it? Sure. Um, the movie was, it really grabbed at my heartstrings mm-hmm. and I, I was not prepared. I didn't know I was going to walk away with the feeling that I had. And, and that is what has honestly happened over here, you know, in, in the States, everybody a couple of weeks ago was talking about this film and it is, it is good to the core. Um, it was, as far as a movie goes, it was, it was a good movie. I'm not saying that it was a cinematic blockbuster. It's the greatest produced video I've ever seen. I could think of tons of movies that, that, that are a better movie, but it's the movement of sound of freedom that it has spurred the, the movement is to the movie as 100 is to one. And it's the awareness that people are, are getting from this movie. I found out so many things that are important world over that I did not know. And it's because of this film. It, it honestly is being used for a tremendous amount of good. That's interesting. And obviously there's some, you know, very, like you say, heartbreaking and serious subject matter at the core of this movie. But I mean, something that I, I found out not so long ago, which seemed a bit strange to me, was that it, it was filmed several years ago, this movie. And it was originally uh, a, going, going to be shown and distributed under the, Basney, uh, under the banner of Walt Disney uh, yes. Studios. <laughs> and uh, that was then canned uh, and they struggle to find distribution well, what's happened there in in your view because i think some people may be forgiven for thinking this might have be some sort of daily wire produced movie or some sort of crowdfunded effort but it actually began its inception under a large major well the major hollywood mm. movie studio yes it was absolutely they um i know that tim ballard and and company uh did some searching to have the movie funded and as you mentioned, Fox, and it went to Disney and, and all of that. Um, and it has been, it has been, uh, it seems to be a very inordinate process uh, that the film has gone through. We have to remember, obviously, that Angel Studios did not work on this movie in pre-production. You know, they've, they've got the, the distribution rights as it sits now, and that is wonderful, and we're very thankful for that. Uh, how and why things have happened the way that they have, I have no idea. I can tell you that as far as the movie being produced, there's been a, and, and I don't know if you're going to, if you're going to take us here in the conversation or not, and I'm not, and I'm not trying to take you there, but one thing that has come up here a lot in conversation, um, and, and there's been a, there's been a, an increasingly, uh, growing contingency of people here in the States who are attacking the film and trying to discredit the film for multiple reasons and in it and using about every angle that you could possibly come up with. All that being said, uh, one of the biggest um, barriers to entry, I guess, for people, they're not wanting to go see the film because the, the individual Carlos Slim, one of the richest men in the world helped, f- helped uh, 
fund the project. I think he spent $700,000 or something along those lines to help it get along in pre-production. And over here, Donald Trump has spoken out against this individual and, and a lot of people have, and there's a lot of fanatical uh, comments about this person. And so that's one way that it's being attacked is who actually began uh, the, the production of it. And so, as you said, it goes to Disney and, and I'll just say this really quick uh, for me um, as somebody who watches and observes and, 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 and thank you for having me on. I don't know you, you guys, but I just watched um, Sean's review of Sound of Freedom. And right after I watched it, I hit the subscribe button because I loved it. I absolutely enjoyed it. And I gave him a comment and I, I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was great. It was heartfelt. Um, but but I will share with you that um, the movie has been under attack in the fact that Disney, the Walt Disney Company, had the rights to the film and they could have released it themselves and made an awful amount of money. They could have done really, really well for themselves, but it but I'm of the opinion that Disney doesn't want to have things to do with that type of message and that type of good. They're not politically, they're not aligning themselves with movies like Sound of Freedom. They're they're just not. And there are other production studios in the States, um, such as Fox, Sony. There are multiple that are now coming out with, um, with faith-based divisions in their production studio. The Walt Disney Company has not done that. As a matter of fact, you could see it as an ad right there. I'm sorry about that. But Jesus, power of freedom, reveals rising power of Jesus in Hollywood. This is an article that just hit over on Newsweek. I didn't know it was going to look like that. Sorry about that, guys. Is it, I mean, this just to interject there, is it not something to be said about the secular nature of entertainment and movies? I mean, we, the Western was massive and it came back round again. And over the last several years or so, we've had a sort of far leftist progressive agenda pushed into a lot of our mainstream entertainment. And, you know, even political messages I agree with, if they're too heavy handed in movies or they're tokenized, it makes me roll my eyes and I'm no longer invested sure. in the character and story. And right. is it not a case of maybe some of the, these so-called Christian values in movies now is, is more of a response to that rather than perhaps the strength of Christian values as a, as a narrative is, is it basically a case of a, a correction mechanism? I would say that, and there there would be many who would disagree with me, but again, you're asking me. So I, I, in my opinion, this country is starving for Christian values, the, the Judeo-Christian values in which we were founded. And there has been an active attack against those going on for decades. And, and the truth is that good people here in this country have turned a blind eye uh, to the attack and they have not been rising up and fighting for the good. And I feel that this movie in particular has created a great deal of awareness and I'm seeing more and more people standing up and doing things uh, and, and helping and donating and things like that and shouting out and sharing it and, it has been very, very good. However, it's been under attack the whole time, and it's, it continues to get worse, but that that is to be expected. I mean, it's not a good argument to be made that the Founding Fathers 
whether, you know, religious, some of them were deists, some of them Christians, obviously, but above all, they were secularist. And that's what the, the First Amendment heavily leans on. Is there not, in your mind, is there not a secular context in which people could push values that are important and worthy to you? Does it have to be wrapped up in a sort of Judeo-Christian understanding of, you know, dogmas and, and, and mythology and, and tenets and things like that? So I will say, uh, I believe this will be an appropriate answer to your question. I will say that the movie and the movement of the film transcends religion and faith. And you do not have to be someone who worships Jesus or a Christian to have an appreciation for the movie and to to promote it. Does, does that answer your question? Certainly does. So I suppose, and again, you have to forgive me, coach, because I've got one hand tied behind my back here because I haven't seen the movie and I'm desperate to see it. Um, <laughs> Good. So I'm not, I, I'm a, a, I'm a secular atheist and I'm, I'm quite sensitive to the overreach of religion in general. Sure. I'm okay with religious people. People should have their mm -hmm. faith and I, I, I would march in the street for their right to have Absol that. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. So my, my line with this movie is, does, I mean, is the, is the Christian faith integral to it as an organic part of the story, which I would enjoy, or does it overreach at points in terms of proselytization or perhaps what some might call no. Christian propaganda? No. no, I think that based on what you just told me about yourself, I think you'll walk away having really enjoyed this movie. See, I mean, this is another thing to be said for the, the Streisand effect as well, because I, I remember seeing the trailer for this movie a while back. and I um, But yes, that conspiracy, it began there. And from there, when, when that attack did not gain enough traction, it's my view that the attackers of the film move on to the next thing. And that was who funded the movie which was the whole Carlos Slim and Carlos Slim is tied to the Clinton foundation and the Clinton foundation is tied to this person. And they actually are involved in human transportation themselves. Um, thank you. I got you. I got you. Um, so all of those things. And then, and then Stephen, when that doesn't catch traction, then they, they come out and they say that the film is highly uh, fictionalized. 99% of the things did not happen in the movie. All of this is wrong. And it's also been debunked. Well, when most of the movie is, is truthful, obviously it's based on a true story and many things. And Tim Ballard has actually gone on record and said, look, that didn't happen. And, and I'm being honest about that. And he actually said those things before the film even released. Which... Well, just to pick up on that point, I mean, that okay. embellishment and composite characters and, you know, sexing things up for the the, the audiences is, is a perfectly common uh, practice in sort of, you know, adaptations of true stories that are inspired exactly. by true events type thing. Some, some, some supernatural horror movies carry the tag inspired by real events. At That's the start right. Of them as well. Absolutely. Right, okay. so, so that being said, you know, they just move on to the next attack, you know, and, and it's kind of like, you know, a shotgun, you know, they, it's just, it just sprays everywhere and anything that can stick sticks. When the whole thing about the, the, the funding of the movie, pe the people that are corrupt that funded the movie, when that didn't work, when the, when the conspiracy theories that you mentioned with Jim Caviezel, with Tim Ballard, when that didn't work, they attack then uh, the, the, the accuracy of the film, when that didn't work, then they attack Tim Ballard himself. Tim, da Tim Ballard belongs to this church. I'm not even going to say the word. Um, 
I think most of your viewers probably are aware, but he belongs to this church and he's this, and he's also belongs to this organization. And look what he said here. And he's all, he's, he's, he's seeking fame and fortune. It's all about himself. And, you know, a, a article just came out yesterday from the Salt Lake, uh, I can't remember the Salt Lake Tribune is who it is. And the gentleman that wrote the article, it was a, it was an absolute smear piece where he, he went through the entire article and attacked Ballard in every single way um, that he can. And and back to your original point, what you were saying, the movie is such a good message. So why is it that so many people are losing focus on what's important and they're not they're they're focused on things to discredit? and to destroy and to kill the momentum. We actually have people over here in the States who are creating uh, source code to buy all the tickets that they can. They're like they have programs, they have written software to purchase tickets for the movie so other Americans can't go watch it for free. Because there's a lot, because the movie is so good and Angel Studios did a great job wanting to see the movie for everybody. They did the pay it forward thing. I don't want to spoil, like you said, you haven't seen it, but there is a, there is something in the credits that you will want to see. Um, it, it is a message and that's all I'll say about it. And and that might've been the, the absolute best part of the film itself was in the credits. Um, go ahead. Can I just, can I just say, if, if I was to put my tinfoil hat on and, and do uh, it, this, this show allows that if I was trying to get eyes and tickets, sold uh for my movie project that probably doesn't have a big marketing budget i might just float the odd rumor or conspiracy that they are trying to prevent you from seeing it i think that would work wonders wouldn't it i mean how have you managed to confirm this this algorithm oh, ticket buying sure. issue and how, how have we confirmed that kind of thing's happening because that's that's one hell of a, a, a tactic or a, an amount of effort to try and shut down a, a film, isn't it? That is a fantastic question. Um, so when I, my, my channel is a very young channel and I'm not here to promote my channel or I, I'm here to be your guest. But when I do um, any video on my channel that I started six weeks ago, I do my research. I, I am not someone who hits the record button and just and just goes. I, I have to be prepared. I have to plan and prepare. So during that process, um, in in preparation for one video, I found a person on Twitter who was actually claiming and sharing the code out, and it was really in your face. And he even went as far to uh, hashtag to tag Angel Studios. Uh, I believe he did Tim Ballard. Hashtag Sound of Freedom, and he was showing people, and he was basically putting it right in uh, the the proponents of the film. He was putting it in their faces, saying, "I'm creating this, and I'm destroying this movement, and you can't do anything about it." And since then, he has posted that that source code on GitHub, where other people can go and get it from him for free, and do the same thing. He's trying to create a movement here, and he's a very small and and he's an ant. In this whole thing, but so I'm just to clarify. Sorry, coach. I think maybe I perhaps I've misunderstood this whole algorithm sure. thing. It, this is this algorithm producing the false effect that this movie sold out, or is it actually buying tickets? It's it's actually so when you you could go, if I'm not mistaken, you could go and 
buy the ticket or actually, all right, <laughs> now I got it. I had, to, I had to think for a second. This has been a long day already. I've been up for eight hours and it's only noon here. Um, <laughs> so what is happening is he his algorithm is reserving the free tickets. That's what he's doing. Got you. Okay. okay. That makes more sense. So the, the, the cinema will be, we say over here, theater. And if you're in the South, we say theater. But <laughs> the cinema is empty when you go. And that has happened quite a bit over here. When you will go, we have had reports from people saying and showing us I'm buying my tickets here. These are the seats that I put, I picked the, the cinema is sold out and they're like, look, and they're showing us there's no one in there. And, and that has happened quite a bit along with a whole lot of other foul play and, and suppression efforts. It appears we've had countless amount of people talk about how, I mean, literally there are videos of cinema workers coming out and saying, we're sorry, the projector broke. We're sorry the air's not working. We're sorry the water's not working in the restroom, so you're going to have to come back tomorrow. And that has happened an unusually high amount of times with this film. That's interesting. I mean, it's weird to me because I could understand it if maybe sort of left-wing, you know, anti-theists were really annoyed that it was promoting a Christian message. But as far as I'm concerned, that's not the issue. It seems that the main theme of the movie is anti-child transportation, which yes. kind of feels like something that's a non-partisan issue that we could all get on board. And I really need to see this film, don't I? Absolutely, you do. Yeah, yes, you do. And, and I would say to all of our international friends, be on guard and watch for the attack to come because uh, it's definitely happened over here and and we're fighting that battle, but I could not be more excited for all of the international people to be able to see this movie because this should not be only in this country. This needs to be everywhere because it is an everywhere movie. So, I mean, just circling back to these hit pieces in the media, and it seems to me the main target of the appropriation is um, Jim Caviezel. I hope I've said that said that right. I seem to remember an old Family Guy sketch where they kind of stumbled over his the pronunciation of his name but i mean it's fair to say he's a conservative christian which is you know he's, he, that's fine by me that's his that's his personal life but i don't think there's any getting around the fact that he does appear to have a, a fair amount of kooky views that do mm. fall into the realm of conspiracy would that be fair to say yes and is he using this film in a way as a launch pad in the in sort of the the media he's doing around it the the promotion he's doing around it to sort of work some of these kooky beliefs into it since the film has released i have not mentioned i have not seen nor heard of him mentioning the conspiracy that you mentioned earlier in the program okay not, not once That's now it now years in the past he has publicly talked about that i don't know what his stance is right now has it changed does he still believe in those things i have no idea i, I have no idea so I mean I believe I mean it's there's a it's a big time for cinema at the moment theater as you put it cinebobs <laughs> cinebobs in uh, the northwest of of England uh, I mean we've we've got Barbie we've got Oppenheimer Mission Impossible's mm. out there these big movies and for a while the, the Sound of Freedom was going toe to toe with those yes. ginormous blockbusters with all the the marketing power and budgets that comes along with it is there an argument to be said here that people are hungry for something that's not 
so mainstream with all the trappings of the sort of diversity and inclusion and safe messages a lot of the mainstream films have nowadays? I would absolutely think so. Yes, I would. I would agree with that. I think that people are hungry for it. And that goes back to what I shared with you. Um, and, and I'm trying to say this in a, in a way where I don't, I don't want to mislead you. I think that there is a potential movement here where we're going to see more, not just faith-based films at all, because sound of freedom is not in my opinion, a faith-based movie. Um, but we're also, we are going to see some things that raises awareness and a lot of good, uh, such, you know, and that's what this movie has done. So yeah, I would, I would say, I would the answer to your question. That's simply, I'd say yes. Is that, I mean, I, I, I don't want to pry. And if you're uncomfortable answering this question, I mean, I get the impression you're a, you're a devout Christian yourself. I am an open book. I just don't want to say something that will trigger YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> it's, what, yes, what, I am. I am. Are you asking me? Like, yes, I am. Yeah. Um, I look much my, my YouTube channel that I again that I just started six weeks ago um, is about cultural culture analysis. I've got I, I've got an advanced degree in in culture in social science, history, psychology, and sociology, and uh, I've got twenty years in the field. The most important thing in my life for me, I, I identify my own biases. Um, I am a, a conservative. I am a Christian. Uh, my relationship with God and my faith is the most important thing. That being said, I would welcome someone who Stephen, like you, who has the beliefs that you do into my area, because I think conversation is important. I think people, I think everybody's voice has value. I don't want to ever have a have a preaching to the choir area. That's not any fun for me. So That's, yeah, they're the principles that I live by. I'm always open for a discussion with anyone. And I think it's perfectly possible to form relationships and friendships with anyone, regardless of their beliefs. I suppose what I was trying to get out in a really clumsy way, you mentioned the word bias a moment ago, which is a great way back into what I was trying to get at. I suppose a lot of the times we see movies that make us groan when they put in some clumsy underhanded um, message about the girl boss or some feminist empowerment or, <laughs> you know, the, the put in the token character of some sort of ethnicity or something sure. and real, really underserve that character. Um, and we're sensitive to this because we kind of disagree with the ideology, the progressive ideology or the woke ideology sometimes being mm -hmm. called. Is there a possibility that this film is kind of the flip side of that coin, but you just don't see it as the same thing because you are yourself a conservative Christian and it, it, it ticks all the boxes to the things that affirm your worldview. Well, I'll tell you, I, in my, in my personal opinion, I would have liked to have seen it gone a lot further to the right. <laughs> 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 that would have been perfectly fine with me. Um, but, but yes, the answer to your question is, is obviously, you, you know, whenever you're looking at something like this, I have to, I have to look at it and analyze it and reflect it and identify my own biases and uh, you're you're absolutely uh, not wrong for saying that for sure. Do you think it do you think it would be a fair? Do you think the word apolitical would be a fair word to describe this film, or is it is there something more to it than that? I really need to see this film again. Uh, one hand behind my back in this conversation. I would hope that when you see it, you will describe it as apolitical, and and if you do not, I need to know the evidence 
Why yeah. is it that you are not? And that's what's happening over here. People are just attacking, but they're not giving receipts or evidence to back up and support their opinions. And it makes it really weak. And yeah. it also, it honestly makes it really easy to debunk. Uh, and that's, that's, go ahead. Yeah. That's, I mean, that was immediately apparent as somebody not watching the film. I went straight to read, you know, read about some of the criticisms of it and they didn't pass the sniff test, even as someone who's not seen it, just the language they were using, the way, like you're saying, that they wasn't evidencing the claims they were making or they leaned on the personal beliefs of the people involved rather than what was represented exactly. on the screen. Is it OK? So I suppose my next question is, I mean, I've, I've complained about this in other realms before, but is it possible anymore to give an objective evaluation of art or, or, or movies and things like that without people filtering it through their own political lenses. It seems now that the people in charge of, or people who, who appoint themselves as critiques of various forms of works, see themselves almost as a, an accountant for the correct opinions or the correct topics. I think since we are in this social media world that we're in now and people, it's so easy to get an opinion out there that people no longer back up you know their opinions with with fact and reason and logic um like you i have my own uh way that i see things when i go to the cinema i my daughters and my wife drug me to go watch barbie <laughs> i did not want to go see that film and i and i walked into it fully anticipating a high degree of woke messaging, left leftist agenda, and I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was going to hate that movie. And you know what, Stephen? I had a blast. It was an 8 out of 10 for me. I could not have been more surprised. It was actually an adult movie with a lot of light moments in it for children to laugh at. And, that, and that's funny, but man, it got deep. Um, and I, um, I enjoyed it immensely we have to actually look and see and evaluate what we're looking at before we prejudge it i agree i totally agree i'm looking forward to seeing that i'm seeing oppenheimer first on sunday but i think i don't think people have a problem with political movies or messages in movies i mean they're always a reflection of the zeitgeist and i just feel like it has to be subtext i think what we have a problem with is when we're being feel like we're being finger wagged or lectured about an issue Absolutely. It's not. It's not good writing. It's not good character. It's not a good mm -hmm. story. It's, it's you know it becomes propaganda. It's a it's a campaign. So um, if we could see two movies right now, the first one would be the, the Sound of Freedom. Just following that would be Barbie. Which would well, you I, recommend? Most? No, I want to see Oppenheimer. That's right. that's the movie that is extremely high on my list. Um, and I don't. I can't even. Rem I don't recall why I went to go see Sound of Freedom. I suppose it was just based on all of my friends in my community here that, that I live around. They were suggesting it. They, they, I kept hearing sound of freedom, sound of freedom. And I'm like, I'm going to go watch it. So my wife didn't want to go watch it with me. So I called one of my, one of my best friends whom I used to go to church with. And I was like, Hey, we're going to the movies. Let's go. And, and he was like, okay. So we went and uh, blown away. But, but yes, I want to see Oppenheimer. I didn't want to see Barbie. I'm glad I did. But I, I will probably go see Oppenheimer this weekend. 
Okay. Well, coach, I think uh, that that's half an hour's flown by and you talk a lot of sense then. And I, I like the fact that even though you have some sort of ideological investment in some of the themes in this movie, you always try and you're trying to find a way to be objective and kind of keep an eye on your own biases. And that's all that anyone can do because we, regardless of how logical we feel we are, I think we all have our little biases that we want to affirm at times. So it's good that you, you're aware that you, you want to keep an eye on those things. Uh, maybe you could just point people towards where they can find your YouTube channel, YouTube, obviously, but give them a bit more information. Sure, sure, uh, sure. Well, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you that there's no such, th no, just, there's no such thing for me. There's no degree of objectivity with anything. We're, we are all biased, but, but that being said, you can find me at coaches archives. Uh, it's um, up with the apostrophe S brand new channel. I started six weeks ago. It has been a great source of enjoyment. I, I, I do it very casually, but I enjoy making the videos and I enjoy producing them. And I've had a tremendous amount of, uh, of support and I've been blown away by the comments on the videos and, and the emails that I've received. And so many people internationally have, have asked me questions. And, and I know that your guys producer here on the channel, uh, in the email inviting me, said that many of your viewers had watched some of my videos and, and suggested to you to have me on. I want to thank you very much for that. Uh, it, it means a lot. And uh, I hope that this movie has an impact over there for you and yours the way that it has over here and that you will stay on guard and not let the, the woke bring it down. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for coming on and speaking to us. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Really need to see this movie, don't I? Um, I suppose a lot of people like me are going to see this movie now just because of the controversy surrounding it, just because we're told we shouldn't see it or we're being told what to think about it before we've even seen it. So once again, I always want to reiterate the power of seeing things yourself, making up your own mind and not being led by other people. I'm just going to bring in Ollie. Ollie, welcome to Out Unleashed. How are you doing? Hey, Stephen. Really good. Thanks for having me. Uh, our pleasure entirely. Uh, I, I've been aware, a little bit aware of you for a while. I didn't realize you'd you'd wrote a book on on gender. I can't believe that's not landed on my radar because I I probably spend most of my time now attacking gender ideology in in various forms. So I mean, where where do we even start uh, with yourself? Because you are somebody who's kind of come through this and come out the other end and now are advocating against it and pointing out the various harms. So first of all, why would you want to write a book about this? What was so important about this issue to you that you thought this is the, the thing I need to write about now? Well, you know, I actually used to be quite woke. You know, I believed all of these things that I was told online. I believe things that people told me and, you know, I was very easily influenced and led astray. And, um, you know, I struggled with identity for many years. I'm sure most of the viewers probably have seen that documented somewhere. And, you know, I struggled to accept myself and I hated the way I looked. I hated the way I identified. So I tried to mold myself into someone that I wasn't. And, you know, I've, I've kind of shared that over the years, but you know, I had a point in my life, um, when I just realized that, you know, enough is enough. I'm really harming myself and people around me because, you know, I'm doing all this surgery. I'm identifying in different ways and it's just not fulfilling me deep down. You know, it's projecting this 
kind of crazy image on the world. And, you know, it was really making me suffer inside. Um, so I had this awakening and it was only after I had this awakening when I, you know, realized my mistakes that I actually started to study what was going on in the world because it's very easy if you're a member of this woke cult or the gender cult, you don't see the other side of the argument. So I didn't see that, you know, in America, these kids are being affirmed and their gender, you know, is being changed in hospitals. You have 15 year old girls having their breasts cut off. I didn't see that because I wasn't being fed that information by, you know, the people that were in my life at the time. So, you know, I've really had this awakening and it's broken my heart to see what's going on with children and young people. You know, we have it in the UK a lot. You know, we're starting to see more and more schools that are pushing pronouns on kids. You know, all of this uh, sexually explicit content, you know, all of these books targeting young kids with gender ideology. And it's really, really harmful. So, you know, half of my book, uh, Gender Madness, is about my own struggle and my own uh, struggle to try and accept myself. It's all about self-acceptance. And I think many people can identify with that, you know young people we all go through struggles trying to find who we are um so this is a you know a cautionary tale you know don't go down the route that i did because it was you know very very extreme and you know the other half of my book is from extensive research that i've done into all of these clinics that are doing this to kids into you know different country laws regarding gender affirming care the issue of women's rights being taken away the issue of parental rights being taken away and you know, i think this book is for everyone it's going to help a lot of people yeah, I mean, I think you, you've hit the nail on the head there, really, in the terms of not a lot of people aren't aren't really kind of in the nicest possible way without sounding patronising, aren't really informed enough on this topic mm -hmm. about what's going on, what's being sold to people, especially young adults and children, and how that's being affirmed uh, and the impact that can have on you know just gay people as well uh, mm -hmm. and women. I mean, you for me were a massive inconvenience to this ideology when you identified as transracial. I don't know if you're you're still mm -hmm. there now, but I mean some some may have noticed from your appearance you've had uh, enhancements and and surgery, I believe, to sort of pay homage or tribute to the Korean culture that you you strongly identify mm -hmm. with and feel a, a sense of belonging with. And for the longest time, and still now, I imagine people gave you a lot of criticism for that. A hard time as if you transgress some huge moral boundary the idea of being transracial however these are the same kind of people which would actively affirm the idea that you could be trapped in the wrong body and just a bit of surgery uh, and you would be an authentic woman trans women are women and to deviate from that is almost a blasphemy on the on the far left so did you see this paradox at the time about how accepting people were of you know transitioning into a different sex but couldn't entertain the possibility somebody may be transracial yeah absolutely i mean you can see the hypocrisy of it the fact that these people in this gender culture you know they tell you uh, you can identify as any way you feel so a man can put on a dress and he can gain access to women's spaces simply because he feels that way and that is their message that they push you know it's not simply about you know someone that's felt that way their whole life now anyone can self-identify and you know you have the law the um Gender Recognition Reform Bill in Scotland, which has amplified this and allowed people to legally change their gender without even getting a doctor's certificate. And, you know, that opens the door to a lot of things, you know, men in women's prisons, men in women's sports and restrooms. So that creates a lot of issues. But, you know, at the time, I just thought, you know, I used to live in Korea. I loved the look and the aesthetic. And at the time, it was making me happy. I realized now it was very toxic. But, you know, I didn't see the harm in it when all of these people were preaching you can identify as 100 different genders, Ziza, pronouns, you know, all of these crazy things. You now, people identify as furries, animals. And I just thought, 
what is the harm in that? In retrospect, I do see the harm in that now. And you know, I was going through a very challenging mental health struggle, which sadly I projected on the world. And, you know, I've come to realize that now and trying to redeem myself and learn from my mistakes. But it really did open a can of worms for these people because they praise people. If you change your gender, you're stunning and brave. But if you suddenly say, I want to be Korean, you are a heretic. <laughs> you are, you know, a, a horrible racist person. That's what they were trying to say. Yeah, uh, I've often used the the argument about transracial people. I think uh, Rachel Dolezal springs to mind as well, the controversy surrounding her, you know, a white woman who just pretended to be black for the longest time, how angry left-wing progressives got at, got towards her, but not the same as men who want to be women, which is, I still can't get my head around. It might be worth picking up on something because I, I know your book uh, covers sort of, you know, sport, women's rights, things mm -hmm. like that. But there's, there's one area as well that you, I think, believe your book touches on. Uh, that I don't think gets enough coverage and I don't think a lot of people are aware of. And it's this idea of social contagion. And it mm -hmm. seems to predominantly, as far as I can see, affect young girls. This idea of, um, you know, getting falling down the, the Tumblr or Reddit rabbit hole or, on gender and learning a lot of bad ideas about, you know, gender and, and being essentially convinced of the fact the, or the idea rather that you're trapped in the wrong body and i, I just wonder is this something that chime chimes true to you and you were struggling with various aspects of your identity did did groups and forums and things like that play a, a role in your understanding of it yeah i mean without the internet i probably wouldn't have done it so you know i think social media i had an addiction to social media i would spend a lot of time on tiktok and um you know much of this social contagion with especially like you said young girls wanting to transition it came about around the same time as the pandemic and tiktok because you know kids were not socializing in schools for two years they weren't around people they were taking to this new app you know this short format which pushes this content to you and you have all sorts of people pushing their different identities sharing their trans journey and you know everybody is celebrating that person so you know, when you have kids cut off from their friendship circles and cut off from going to school and you give them this platform of TikTok pushing these ideas on them these kids are then going to be convinced that this is the right solution for them so you know for me i think social media did play a big part because my algorithm was suggesting you know all of these trans videos changing your gender surgery videos so you know i I was kind of easily led astray by that. But, you know, imagine a 13 year old today going on TikTok and all they see is somebody telling them to change their gender. And, you know, the reason you're unhappy is because your gender, they're going to do it. And it's not simply a case of, you know, a kid changing their pronouns. Kids are going on hormones. They're going on puberty blockers. And in some countries like the US, they are actually having double mastectomies. So this is a real issue. It's more than a social contagion. This has become a serious, serious issue. And I think that's why you know, my book is really discussing how social media plays a huge role in influencing young kids' decision. And again, it's all happened within the last few years. You know, it's always been trans people throughout the 80s, the 70s, you know, always been men that feel more feminine and vice versa. But there's never been anything like what we're seeing today. And it's really happened within the last five years. This is a difficult one as well, because uh, as you, you well know, these the, the idea of transgender identity has, has been, for better or worse, worse in my opinion, heavily welded to the gay rights movement, which seems like a huge category error to me. How those things inform each other or how they have shared uh, issues, I, I don't think stacks up. But that has the effect in a way of making people like me just look like the homophobes of the 80s and the 90s, you know, mm. rattling his saber at 
the the new thing it's just a you know keep them away from my kids kind of mentality you know it's just a phase they'll get over all these horrible homophobic tropes that were thrown around in generations gone and still are to an extent obviously and how do we explain to people really that it this isn't that this is something entirely different that's worthy of anyone's attention who's got you know strong uh, liberal principles i suppose and any empathetic values to to look at in a in a way that isn't basically repeating the problems of history and re, re, you know uh, repeating the the homophobia we've seen well that's a great point and i actually think the real homophobia is all of these kids that are struggling with their sexuality they might be gay lesbian or bi and they're being told that they're trans. So these are kids just struggling with their identity, you know, 13, 14 years old. And, you know, that was an issue for me because I was struggling with my sexuality as a teen, you know, I was gay and I couldn't understand that. So I thought maybe I am trapped in the wrong body. Maybe I'm meant to be a girl because why would I be attracted to boys? So I think that's the real homophobia happening now is kids that are just gay are being told that they're trans. And then you, of course, have the link between, you know, the LGB movement as now mixed with TQI plus 2S, you know, and the list seems to go on. And I think that's really harmful because conflating gender identity with sexuality, two different things. And then I get this a lot. And like you said, you get it a lot as well. You know, when you speak out about these things, you're, um, you know, they compare it to 50 years ago with the Stonewall riots when people were trying to um, say that homosexuality was a sin and trying to take away gay rights. But this is a completely different scenario. This is not about taking away anyone's rights because we all have equal rights, whether you're trans, male, female, whoever you are, however you identify, we have equal rights. The issue now, which we didn't have 50 years ago when you know the LGBT movement started, was that kids are being medically transitioned. Kids are being indoctrinated into something that they wouldn't have considered before. And it's a very dangerous thing to do that to children, to manipulate them to brainwash them with this stuff. So I think that's the real difference. And I get called it all the time, homophobic, transphobic, and it's really not. It's that simple as speaking up for kids and also speaking up for women because no woman wants to be confronted with a biological male in their safe space when they're in a vulnerable position. And it's just not fair. Yeah, and I think the children thing is 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 massively important for the obvious reasons, but I think it may be also I think it's also been instrumental in swaying the attitudes of the general public because I we've seen people we've seen feminist groups bang on for years about from the women's rights angle, which is just as, as well still a massive problem. Mm -hmm. We've seen people bang on about from the sporting athletics angle and all the injustices there uh, people banging on simply from a scientific perspective about the fact there is only two human genders slash sexes uh, and that's just the way biology is none of that seems to have seems to have put a dent in this movement or, or led to any sort of significant rollback however we've seen progress in in the in the sense that the Tavistock Clinic in the UK has been closed and there's been huge mm -hmm. reviews gone into that about processes. I think that's currently facing thousands of, you know, potential legislation from parents of people who, whose children went to that clinic. We've seen new rules coming in in sport of late. It seems like any British politician that gets before a microphone now is asked to define what a woman is, a woman yeah. is rather, which is, you know, it's really helpful in deciding whether they're tethered to reality. So mm -hmm. are we seeing... Uh, a positive pushback now is this being as the power this ideology has over institution and culture is it being fought back yeah i think finally it is and we are seeing some significant progress um and i think before you know this year people weren't seeing these things you know we weren't noticing it it was you know either turning a blind eye or just not understanding the depths and you know indeed i felt like that as well i didn't see the harm of this uh 
ideology that's being pushed on people. Um, so I think uh, we've seen a lot of pushback this year. There's various sporting bodies, uh, British rowing, um, various athletic organizations that have finally taken the decision to um, make female categories specifically for females and, and make the men's category open. So someone that's transgender still has the equal opportunity to compete, which is completely fair, but they have to compete with their biological sex. And that's the only solution, I think, with sports, because it just it's not fair. It's biology. And, you know, whatever you do to your body, you're still going to have an advantage over a woman. So we've seen huge progress in terms of the U.S. Uh, 20 states this year have passed legislation to ban what they call gender affirming care, which is the medical transitions of children under 18. So that's another thing with progress. And we've also seen a lot of people speaking out because I think before, you know, people were scared because look what they did to J.K. Rowling. She was destroyed and humiliated by these trans activists and you know it has to take a few people to speak out and be brave um, in order to rally everyone else around and i think now many women are speaking up many parents are speaking up and look the vast majority of people nobody wants to exclude any anyone you know that's not fair nobody's calling for you know it's not fair for trans people to exist people want everyone to be happy and everyone to be you know equally happy in this world but the issue is when you're targeting kids or when you're pushing this on other people and especially women as well you know i think that's the issue that riles a lot of people up yeah i think that's an important distinction to make it i think you know the the gay rights movement was a genuine push for equality mm -hmm. uh and you know the dignity of living your life and having a private life and being gay or a public life and being gay or what have you but it, it, it for me gender ideologies traveled so far and so so fast especially in the uk for instance to the point where as you said we're we're, we're seeing it taught in schools as facts you know mm -hmm. some very questionable um materials being taught in school which is very difficult to get a freedom of information request on which is even more concerning uh obviously media culture journalism the, the, the law for instance you could expect a knock on the door from the police if you publicly misgender someone for instance so i, I mean to be fair if we're going to give them some credit, the, the gender ideology movement has been very effective uh, and have made huge gains. How have they managed to do this in such a short space of time with something that does not pass the the basic sniff test of logic? Yeah, and it really is like a, a chapter out of George Orwell's 1984, because we're living in a dystopian future where the truth is rejected, you know, two plus two equals five, just like in 1984. You know, that's the reality, because the simple thing of saying that a woman is a woman is being rejected. And anyone that claims that, you know, the simple scientific fact that a woman's a woman, you're called the heretic, you're the one that's deemed transphobic, you're the one that has this... Uh, wrong think or wrong speak or whatever was referred to in the book so i think that's the issue and that's why it is so important for people to speak up because you know it really has become a dystopian future of rejecting the truth and like you said these ideologies are seeping into schools and you know, politicians like kia Stammer can't seem to define a woman you know it's just it's just ridiculous at this point so we need to just focus on the truth focus on speaking up for some common sense and again like i said you know nobody really has too much of an issue with somebody living their life as long as they're not pushing it on other people but it's this constant push to indoctrinate people and the reason they're so powerful is you have to look at the people backing them so some very big lgbt organizations that have basically been hijacked by trans ideology so of course you have stonewall in the uk the um ceo um was on sky news recently and you know saying some very misogynistic things 
Um, you have in the US the Human Rights Campaign, the world's largest LGBT lobby group. They are the ones behind this corporate equality index. So they go into businesses, they give them a scorecard based on how inclusive and how much they push gender ideology. So and they all have the same investors, BlackRock and Vanguard. So some really powerful people pushing this. Um, and I mean, look at the, the White House, for instance, the Biden administration has been completely captured by this gender ideology. You know, if you saw the White House uh, Pride event, you had a trans activist take off their top and show off their breasts on the White House lawn where children were present. And that's at the White House. I mean, they did disinvite that person from ever coming again, but it's not the point. It's the fact that these people are being pandered to. They are in control of what people think. And you have the media, particularly, you know, BBC and stuff. You know, if you misgender someone, you are a thought criminal. Um, they don't seem to ex expect reality. And, you know, the fact they're writing articles and, you know, denying reality like Dylan Mulvaney, the TikTok, you know, saying she and anyone that misgenders him is a bigot and hateful. It's just, you know, it's denying reality. Yeah, I, I seem to believe Dylan Mulvaney saying that anyone who thinks that being misgendered should be illegal, really, he thinks yeah. that should be a, a crime, which is, I mean, it it's... It's it's an attempt to prevent people from accurately describing reality by coercion uh, and threats. Um, I mean, I suppose I suppose something that interests me, especially about you, with what you said at the start of this conversation, that you were kind of like woke, uh, you know, very progressive in your output, and you've obviously made some decisions which, on the face of it, many of us would describe as extreme uh because of that and now you are someone who's come through that and you're advocating on the other side uh you would i suppose you class yourself as anti-woke i believe you've gone mm. something from atheist to christian journey and i suppose a lot of people from the outside looking in would be uh, wondering how you are able to prevent yourself just from ping-ponging from one extreme to another i've, I've spoke to many called many uh, reformed radicals before and yeah. i've been disappointed to see eventually they go too far in the other direction, perhaps. What kind of things do you have in place or, or do to make sure you don't lose the plot, Ollie, I suppose is what I'm asking you. <laughs> you know, I get that a lot. You know, people do say, oh, you've had such an extreme past. How do we know this is not just another extreme phase with you? And you know, at the end of the day, I've actually had an awakening. I was so trapped in my own mind and all this woke ideology before that I literally couldn't see reality. And I was denying reality with my identity. I was, you know, having all these surgeries changing. I was denying my own reality. So I finally woken up from that reality. And you know, I came to realize that there's more important things in the world than my identity or looking a certain way. And I also had the realization that I am a role model for people, you know, on TikTok, on whatever, Twitter, Instagram, and I have a responsibility. And I didn't see that before. I didn't see the harm in projecting my identity struggles on the world. Now I've really seen the harm and think, you know what, this is not good. So I barely post on TikTok anymore because I don't want to be a bad influence. And, uh, you know, most people don't have that awakening. You know, most people, they try to change and it's not that extreme, but I've really realized the error of my ways. And, you know, I'm on a path now to speak up and, you know, I dedicate every day. I was getting so many brand deals on TikTok before when I was trans. Now I'm getting canceled all the time by different brands and stuff, but that's not important to me. It doesn't matter to me anymore because before, you know, a year ago, that would have been very important to me. But now my priority is just focusing every day on self-improvement and also trying to help people. So that's why I wrote this self-help book for parents, for young people struggling, uh, you know, gender madness, because it's just trying to, encourage people to have some sensibility and, you know, maybe spend a little bit less time on things like TikTok and start to be a bit more of a free thinker. How, how do we navigate these waters publicly then? Because I'm somebody who will 
happily state that there are only two human sexes and it's not possible to change your sex. But I want to be a polite and civil individual. And I, I, I've met and I know trans people in my life I have no problem with. And I will use preferred pronouns as long as it's my choice, as long as it's not the mm. state pushing this on me, as long as it's not culture or society or being threatened in any way. I believe it's my choice. So how, how do we navigate these waters uh, and keep our empathy because I, I'm very, uh, I get very trench-like in my mentality with this sometimes, mm -hmm. and go all guns are blazing, and sometimes forget there are actually people in the crosshairs who are, who are going through something that's very real. They're struggling with their identity as you did. It's very real to them. They're trying to figure it out, and not only that, they're being fed a lot of lies and a lot of bad advice from very credible institutions and organisations. How do, how do people like us navigate this without becoming the big big bad wolf? Yeah, I mean, it is a sensitive subject, but I think the thing when they're trying to force people, if you misgender someone, it's a crime. I mean, you have Michigan State in the US is proposing laws to fine someone up to $10,000 in a jail sentence if you misgender someone. So, you know, if I go to Michigan, I'm still going to call Dylan Mulvaney he, him. I don't care about that. But um, same with Australia, you know, in Australia, you know, I misgendered someone on Twitter and I got a report saying I was being investigated by the Australian police for calling a man uh, a man. It's just, you know, it's rejection reality. So I think we can't accept this. We can't pander to it. And like you said, you know, it's an individual decision. If you want to call someone that you want to call someone a girl, that's fine. You know, I it's quite a difficult thing with pronouns because I don't really use people's pronouns because I think it's pandering to them. But, you know, if I have someone that's trans and they're respectful and they're nice, you know, I'll say, OK, she, because it makes more sense. They, they look that. But I will never deny the reality. And I think there are trans people out there, I've got trans friends, they don't deny the reality and I think that's the difference. When they actually say that they're a woman and try to force you to uh, think that they're a woman, I think that's more of a problem. But when they accept that they are a man, they just want to look a certain way, I think there's, you know, I have more respect for those people. But I think the problem is when they're forcing it and trying to pass laws. I think um, Ireland's um, was looking at passing a law regarding hate speech and that's a very broad term. Know, to include things like misgendering. Canada is one of the worst defenders. It's the most woke country in the world. And, um, you know, I just think we have to reject it. We can't pander to this anymore because at the end of the day, it's taking away individual liberties. We live in a free country. We should be allowed to say what we want. Uh, we should be allowed to say the truth. You know, it's not being transphobic or hateful to call a man a man. It's just being honest. So the fact that they're trying to paint out people as bad people or heretics or criminals for you know misgendering someone it really is very orwellian yeah no very very well put and you've, you've just reminded me of the fact as well it's something i always try and reiterate when talking about this it seems very unfortunate that people have been kind of conned into believing there is something called the trans community and the, the idea that this trans community is one monolithic block that are all on the same page with this ideology and all subscribe to the progressive dogmas and tenets around gender. Whereas reality is, and you would have noticed with your friends and discussions with people that a lot of trans people are just as diverse as anyone else. Some are conservatives, some are, you know, far left progressives. Some think they are actually, you know, they believe they've changed sex or trapped in the wrong body. Others are perfectly aware they have gender dysphoria or something else and they are they're, they're doing it because it helps them or whatever you so i mean how, how do we get that across to people that actually when you say when you are fighting for this ideology as a non-trans person you're actually throwing a lot of trans people under the bus and making life more difficult for them by engendering these these ideas that people will be easily be able to reject as false 
Yeah, so that's why, you know, whenever I do news interviews, I always like to make the distinction between trans people and trans activists because, yeah. you know, the, the people pushing this are the extreme elements of trans activists. And sadly, they have actually hijacked the entire LGBT movement. So, you know, they don't speak for all trans people. And, and like you said, there are trans people just simply living their lives. They just want to exist and be happy. And, you know, as human beings, we have, you know, equal rights. We have a right to do that. But... Um, I think it's these activists, and I always make the distinction there, the trans activists, some people call them TRA, TRAS, you know, <laughs> trans radical activists, because they're the ones pushing these things. And sadly, they're the ones people listen to. Because when you yeah. look at laws being passed to protect trans people, it's these people that are lobbying for this. These people are testifying in, in parliaments, in congresses. These are the people. And the LGBT organizations, you know, the vast majority of them have uh, gone along with this ideology. They're pushing it. And not only that, you even have charities for human rights, Amnesty International, Oxfam, which is about fighting poverty. They are pushing this trans ideology hard. I mean, Amnesty International the other day tweeted the word trans rights 10 times in one tweet just to get the point across. And I'm thinking you're meant to be sticking up for people in Saudi Arabia that are having great, great human rights abuses. You know, why aren't you speaking up for them? So I think that's the issue. So there's always a distinction between normal trans people. And, you know, I also encourage trans people to actually speak up because their movement is being kind of hijacked and they are being cast in the same net. So that as difficult as it is, they need to speak up. They need to be active on social media, speaking with other people in real life you know, to say that, hang on a minute, I reject this gender ideology. This is wrong. And the more trans people we can see on you know, TV channels, doing news commentary online, speaking out against this, the more we can defeat this uh, gender ideology, which has really captured the entire LGBT community. Yeah. I mean, just just lastly as well, I suppose, there's always this big scare about trans rights being erased or their existence being erased. And the truth is, which is great news, you know, anti-trans hate crime, especially in the UK, is, you know, especially rare. Uh, especially mm. violent crimes. I think a lot of the statistics, a lot of the scaremongering statistics tend to relate to uh, online comments and then things like like that. And uh, But there is this possibility, rather, uh, of a, a, ba a backlash or, or a, a, an overcorrection to this ideology that may impact the rights of, of trans people. Do you, do you worry about that at all? Um, I mean, look, it's the trans activists that are causing all this trouble. So I think the entire LGBT community really need to speak up and call it out. I mean, for instance, Pride has been hijacked. You know, uh, many of your viewers may have seen, you know, the scenes at some Prides were really shocking and inappropriate for children. And all of this is being pushed down their throats. So I think, you know, LGBT people need to speak up and separate themselves from this small minority, which has become the loud majority. And, you know, because it is affecting trans people. You know, trans people always say, you know, they don't have rights and stuff. But again, we all have equal rights. We're a very tolerant country. UK is so accepting, no, no judge, judgment or anything. But the issue is when this is constantly being pushed in people's faces, it's actually going to affect real trans people that are just living their lives or have been living their lives for a while. They're now being cast in the same net. So I think the only way to fix that is for trans people, LGBT people to separate themselves from this movement and try to you know, come up with a better alternative for all these trans activists dictating what every charity says and what every policy is in the government. You know, I think it's wrong. Ollie, thank you very much. And uh, check out their book, Gender Madness. I'll, I'll be adding it to my reading list for sure. But I appreciate you coming on uh, and speaking to us. Uh, yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Really important topic. So thanks for allowing me to speak on it. Our pleasure. Thank you very much. See you again. Thank you. Take care. John, welcome to Outward Unleashed. How are you doing?
Good. How are you doing? Is this uh, coming through all right? Can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. We can see you. Everything's good. We passed the first test, basically. It's all great. It's all plain sailing from here. Great. Um, great. Maybe you could tell our, our audience a little bit about yourself. How would you describe what you do? Of course, uh, I'm John Lyle. I'm a historian at the University of Texas. Uh, mostly what I do as a historian is um, go to archives, find old documents, and try to make sense of the past, what actually happened. My main research interests are the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. This is the precursor to the CIA during World War II and the CIA itself during the Cold War. That's excellent. So there's a lot to discuss with the CIA because I spend a, a fair chunk of my time debunking conspiracies. Uh, I'm an anti-conspiracy theorist in a way. However, when it comes to the CIA, historically, it seems like all bets are off, that they lend, they lend a lot of credibility to conspiracy theorists, don't they? Some of the shenanigans and uh, things they've attempted to pull off through history and are probably trying to get away with as we speak. Well, you make a really, really good point there. One of the projects I'm working on right now deals with the CIA's MK Ultra program. This is the program during the Cold War where a few scientists are conducting experiments to determine whether mind control is possible. Is it possible to give people certain drugs that make them act in a certain way or divulge secret information that they otherwise wouldn't? The fact that there were these kinds of programs that are generally seen to be as pretty unethical nowadays, the fact that these actually occurred gives credence to some conspiracy theories. The idea is that, well, if they did that in the past, then surely they're doing that now or something like that now. So it's the, you know, it's the historical fact that some of these programs actually did exist that lends credence to conspiracy theorists saying that, oh, well, that must be still occurring. Yeah. I suppose, I mean, we've got Oppenheimer out at the moment. I'm, I've not seen it yet. I'm going to see it on Sunday. But a lot of what was done um, in that, that that war effort, the, you know, the, the splitting of the atom, the creating the bomb, etc., was all done on, under the, the, the veil of secrecy. Nobody really knew anything about it until I think they pressed the button. Um, it, I mean, how... How how hard would it be to pull something off like that in the modern era? I mean, it, it would have been difficult then, of course, but we have social media to contend with, digital communication, uh, audiovisual recording software in our pockets, things like that. Is it is it more difficult now with the technology to pull off cons conspiracies of this sort, or is it it's actually easier? Does technology give us an edge? Um, I, I think it would probably be more difficult, and it was already difficult. If you know, just speaking of the Manhattan Project to build the atomic bomb, it was already difficult, basically impossible to keep secrecy there. There were spies within the program. The general public, not the majority of the general public, but there were some people in the press, especially, who caught wind that this was going on, the Manhattan Project. So not even that was kept a complete secret. In fact, there's kind of an irony to keeping something secret actually sometimes enables people to learn what you're doing. It's, it, it's kind of a weird thing, <laughs> but let me describe how this works. If, if you're a physicist in the United States, you join the Manhattan Project. If you do that, the government is going to censor what you say. You're not going to be allowed to publish the work that you're doing because you're working on the secret project. Well, there were some physicists abroad. One of them was in uh, Russia, and he started looking at American physics journals and realized that none of the top American physicists are publishing anything. They're, they stopped publishing. And he realized that he called this the dogs that didn't bark. This is evidence 
that not that they're not working on anything. It's evidence that the secrecy has been imposed on them. And if secrecy is being imposed on all these nuclear physicists, what, what might that mean? Well, they're probably working on a secret project. What kind of project could they be working on? Well, nuclear fission was just discovered, and Leo Zillard has been talking about nuclear chain reactions. They're probably working on a bomb. So the fact that you even tried to keep something secret in itself can actually lead someone to discover that secret. <laughs> so not, there wasn't a sufficient cover story uh, propagated at that point. So explain why they seemed uh, incapable of fulfilling their, their normal duties. That, that's really funny uh, in a terrifying kind of way, of course. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the OSS because I, I have no idea who they are. I didn't know they would preceded the CIA or what. Uh, enlighten us, please. Yeah, so the OSS was created in um, right at kind of at the beginning of World War II. Um, it's called the Office of Strategic Services, and it was the original kind of central intelligence organization for the United States. Prior to the OSS, there were several different intelligence organizations that collected intelligence, like military intelligence, naval intelligence, but these were all scattered over different divisions, you know, the, the army or the navy. And William Donovan, who was became the head of the OSS. He was an attorney in New York, a war hero from World War I. He lobbied President Franklin Roosevelt to create a centralized intelligence organization during World War II that could collect all the different intelligence from different organizations, put it all together, try to analyze and understand it, and then inform the president with this broader picture in mind. So that was the general purpose of the OSS when it was created. It came to do several more things than just collect intelligence, though. During the war, it did send spies abroad. It developed contacts abroad to uh, inform people, in, inform, uh, you know, President Roosevelt back home what was going on. It had an analysis branch that analyzed intelligence and tried to formulate what was happening. But it also conducted espion or sabotage, um, disinformation campaigns. So all that was part of the OSS. What I focus on in my book is a division within the OSS called the R&D branch, the research and development branch. And this was the branch responsible for mainly developing all the weapons to conduct sabotage. So anything from silent pistols to suicide pills to incendiary devices to explosive bombs that you could stretch to, uh, strap to bats that would blow up Tokyo. So... <laughs> All, all of these um, kind of crazy gadgets, that was the R&D branch of the OSS. And in, in addition to that, they also developed the undercover disguises for agents to go abroad. They forged documents that, so these agents could have cover stories, legitimate cover stories. So that's what the R&D branch did, and that's what my book is focused on, that one branch. I think I'm slightly fascinated by the the, uh, the gadgets here for sabotage. I think, mm -hmm. I think it's the James Bond Finding me that finding me that's really interesting. I suppose. I mean, didn't the CIA at one point try to engineer some sort of exploding cigar to get Castro? Have I imagined this? That no, there there are a lot of plots on Castro that happen. So exploding cigars, cigars laced laced with botulinum botulinum toxin. So the idea was that he would smoke it and you know get this toxin and die. Cigars laced with LSD. The idea was that Castro would smoke these and he would kind of go insane before a radio broadcast and he would do the broadcast and people would lose faith in him because he appeared <laughs> to be deranged. Um, there, there there were several attempts using scuba gear so castro was an avid scuba diver so one idea was that how about we get this really beautiful shell and fill it with explosives and put it in 
the ocean where he commonly scuba dives. He's going to swim by, he's going to see it, and it's going to be so enticing, he's going to have to pick it up. And when he does, it's going to explode and kill him. <laughs> there's a shell, there's a shell shocked joke in there, isn't there? The headlines <laughs> would have wrote themselves for sure. Yes. But I mean, on the face of it, this sounds really kooky looking back and a little bit it almost reeks of a level of incompetence or not really knowing what to do. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I think the second part, especially about not really knowing what to do. Stanley Lovell is the main focus of this book because he's the head of the R&D branch. He's a chemist from around around Boston. And when he's hired to head this R&D branch for the OSS and develop these devices, he has no clue what to do. He tries to ask William Donovan, the head of the OSS, what, what do you want me to create? What kinds of devices? And Donovan basically tells him, Stanley Lovell basically learns, just start making stuff and we'll see what's useful. We don't know because we've never engaged in this kind of warfare before. In fact, right at the beginning of the R&D branch, when it's created, Stanley Lovell goes to England to learn some of the tips and tricks from the SOE, the Special Operations Executive. The British, they have a longer pedigree in this kind of secret warfare than the United States. So Stanley Lovell is trying to pick up some tips from them. Um, but really his philosophy during this is, let's just create all these gadgets and weapons. We don't know what's going to work, but if we can make kind of as much as we can, maybe something will, and maybe it can help in some way. They're really just throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks. The phrase that kind of encapsulates this is desperate times call for desperate measures. So he's just looking for desperate measures that maybe something can help. Just seen a comment uh, from Ray J in the, in the live chat, and I have no way of knowing this is true, but it's so delicious to read that I'm going to put it to you, John. She, the Ray J said, CIA even thought of poisoned underpants for Castro. Please tell me that's true. Um, I, I think that's close to the truth. I don't know if it was underpants, but I do know of a plot to put to or, or to put a what's called Madura foot, a kind of fungus, in a, in his diving suit. So that he would put on this diving suit and he would develop, you know, this skin breakout and disease. It sounds um, like they've run these through like a randomizer, like exploding shell, you know, uh, fungal wetsuit. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, there there are definitely some odd ones. You know, they get um, they get even odder with the OSS. You know, so some of the projects that I talk about in this book, um, I mentioned the bat bombs in the opening, but there's another project called Operation Fantasia. This is an idea of psychological warfare against the Japanese. The idea behind this is that um, in the Shinto religion, there are portents of doom that look like glowing foxes. It's a bad omen. If you see one of these glowing foxes, it means that something bad might happen. And so the OSS tries to capitalize on this by creating glowing foxes with the idea to release them in Japan. And again, the idea being, if the Japanese see these glowing foxes, maybe they'll think that it's a bad omen and they're going to lose the war. So maybe they'll decide we should give up before all is lost. So we might as well just you know surrender now. Um, th this actually goes really far. There are several experiments done with these glowing foxes. First, these foxes are uh, captured. You know, they had to capture foxes. Uh, the OSS then finds this radioactive paint that it can paint on the foxes so it can make them glow. Um, as part of these experiments, 
the OSS decides, well, we need to see if these foxes can actually swim because the idea will be we'll release them off the coast of Japan. They'll swim to shore and then scare the Japanese. But can foxes even swim? You know, if we release them, are they just going to drown? <laughs> and so a group of OSS personnel capture up foxes, take them to the middle of the Chesapeake Bay and throw them overboard. And it turns out the foxes actually did swim to shore. So foxes can swim. But by the time they had gotten to shore, all of the glowing paint had washed off. So it <laughs> kind of rendered it, you know, innocuous from the first point. Just rather than weaponized superstition, just some really soggy, pissed off foxes <laughs> yes. by the sound of it for sure. So, I mean, if anyone's got any examples of any CIA law that they want to put to us in terms of gadgets, attempts, I'll, I'll run them past John and see if they pass the sniff test. But I mean, going back to the bat bombs, please expand on that more. I mean, how, I mean, how how long ago are we talking here, and what sort of explosives are we talking that a bat would be able to carry? I mean, I think I feel like a bat would struggle with a hand grenade, let alone anything bigger. Yes, exactly. And that was one of the main challenges challenges of this bat bomb. Uh, it was the brainchild of a dentist actually named Little Adams. Um, right after the Japanese launched the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, Little Adams had gone to Carlsbad Caverns just on a vacation. And as he was leaving, he hears about the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, and he's thinking to himself, how can I help my country now that we're going to get involved in this war? What can I do? So he conceives of this idea of the bat bomb. His idea is to strap small incendiary devices to bats and fly them over Japan, release them, and then the bats will roost into warehouses and into stockpiles of wood and houses and all kinds of stuff. And after a certain amount of time, these incendiary devices will be time-delayed. They'll be um, scheduled to delay or scheduled to detonate. They'll explode. The incendiary, you know, um, will start fires and will basically blow up Japan or set fire to Japan without having to launch these costly bomber raids, bomber raids whose bombs don't even hit the targets half the time anyway. So we can just release these bats and they'll fly directly to the targets. So Little Adams sends this idea to Eleanor Roosevelt, who's kind of a personal friend of his. <laughs> Eleanor Roosevelt gives it to her husband, the president of the United States, Franklin Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt gives it to William Donovan, the head of the OSS. And Donovan looks at this and he says, well, he doesn't know where else to give it. He gives the proposal to Stanley Lovell, the head of the R&D branch. So that's how it eventually gets there. Stanley Lovell, in order to create the incendiaries that are small enough so that a bat can actually carry it, hires a guy named Louis Pfizer. He was a chemist at Harvard. Pfizer is famous for having invented napalm. And so he creates these small incendiaries that have napalm in them for these bats. There are actually several tests that occur under this bat bomb project to see if the thing would actually work. In the first test, they don't strap the bats with incendiaries, but they cool them down because in order to transport them on a plane, the idea is that we can put them in like a hibernation state and then we can transport them, we can drop them from the plane, they'll wake up and then they'll fly away. So to see if this actually works, they cool down these bats, they put them on the plane, they fly fly them over the desert in California, and they drop them. Now, it turns out they actually cooled down the bats too much, and they never woke up, and they just splattered into the desert floor. So that didn't work quite as intended. But there's also another experiment where Louis Pfizer, the chemist who developed napalm and the incendiaries for these bats, he attached some of these incendiaries to the bats to determine if they could actually fly with them and work. So these bats are cooled down in a hibernative state, 
but they actually this time woke up too quickly. And this time they have the incendiaries attached to them. So before he could stop them, the bats start flying off. They actually flew into a barracks of a military base and to a control tower. And after the time delay goes off, they blew it up and set fire to the barracks and the control tower. So it turns out the bat bomb actually worked. But by the time that it was you know, ready to go to Japan, the U.S. had already developed the atomic bomb. And so the bat bomb wasn't needed. See, this... John, this to me is extraordinary because when you were talking about the bat bomb, I assume this, and you were talking about it going up the chain of command and people not knowing where where it was to go. I assumed when it reached the top, it would then go in the, uh, you know, waste paper bin, and that'd be the end of it. And it'd be a funny little bit of trivia. The fact that <laughs> these things were tried and and tested and taken seriously, it, it it feels like something. It feels like a comedy movie should be made of this whole era if it hasn't already unless i've missed it and I, I suppose my question on that front would be how how do we have this information now that this did happen are, the, are these declassified are these leaks how do we know about it yeah uh, mo most of this is all declassified there are several people involved in these stories who wrote memoirs which is good for me because they talk about what they did but more importantly most of what i'm talking about is stuff that i've found at the national archives just declassified military government oss records that anyone can go to. I mean, not many people other than historians take the time to actually do it, but anyone can go to these archives and look up these documents. Um, but that's where most of it comes from. And just to kind of piggyback on what you were saying about, surely when it gets up the chain of command, somebody would put a stop to this. In this case, for the bat bomb, it worked the opposite way. From Franklin Roosevelt, when he sends the proposal for the bat bomb to William Donovan in the OSS, Roosevelt attaches a, a, a note to the proposal talking about Little Adams, the guy who wrote the proposal. And Roosevelt says of him, this man is not a nut. That's his direct quote. This man is not a nut. In other words, take this idea seriously. When it gets down to Stanley Lovell, that's when people start thinking, is this even practical? So the actual scientists involved had questions. But the, you know, the military leaders, the president, they, they don't know the actual kind of science of whether this is practical or not. So they say, yeah, go for it. And then it's, it's when it gets down to the lower levels that people actually have the practical knowledge when they start calling into question, can we even do this or should we even do this? How how difficult is it in general to keep secrets now? And I don't know how much this ties into the CIA or your area of expertise, but it's very topical at the minute. And these, I don't know if you spent today watching the um, <laughs> the the discussions over uh, UAPs, the call now unidentified aerial phenomenon in, in Congress. And then I remember I remember watching it today, and I remember chuckling to myself. I just had this absurd thought that there's a bunch of apes in suits in a room talking about flying aliens on our planet it's just an absurd moment that you know it's like an episode of the x-files i used to love this stuff as a kid a ufo, UFO law i used to live it breathe it it's fascinating it still fascinates me to an extent but i've since become very cynical and skeptical about the thing now i suppose my question is in a roundabout way in regards to ufos given what we know about the cia and other intelligence agencies is there a a, a real possibility that we may have somewhere in America, it's always America, strangely, um, recovered uh, extraterrestrial artifacts such as crafts, even entities, bodies, things like that. Because they are the accusations. They are the things that, you know, are being thrown out there. They are the things that raises eyebrows with the public, the claims yeah. rather. Um, I haven't kept up too much with the UAP stuff, but my strong intuition is that, no, we don't have any of that. <laughs> I see no reason to think that we actually do other than wishful thinking. Yeah. Um, what a historian does that 
when people typically think of historians, what they think of is, oh, you talk about what the past, what happened in the past. And that's kind of true, but it's kind of not true. What a historian actually does is try to come up with the most probable explanation of what they think happened in the past. We don't have direct access to the past. The past is gone. We can't visit it. We can't go see it. It's, it's lost to us. What we do have are records that tell us what the person who wrote the record thinks happened in the past or what they are wanting us to believe happened in the past. It's the historian's job then to come up with the most probable explanation that accounts for these records. What's the most probable explanation for the past that accounts for the evidence that we actually have? The most probable explanation for claims that we've recovered an alien body isn't that we've recovered an alien body. It's that somebody told a lie. You know, yeah. so it's a lot more probable that somebody is misjudging what they're seeing or telling a lie than it is that we actually recovered this thing that would seem to, you know, I, I don't know, indicate that some alien civilization, however many light years away, traveled to us, but it's kept a secret. I mean, you know, when you just add up the probabilities, it's extremely improbable. There's a lot more probable explanations. Now, that being said, it doesn't mean that that has to be the case. It could be the case that aliens visited us, but that's kind of just non-falsifiable now. Like, okay, anything could be the case, but it's up to you to give me the evidence for why that is. Until you do, I'm going to stick with the thing that's more probable. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people struggle with the burden of proof on, on this topic because I am I am more than open to this. I really want there to be little green men and, and flying saucers and, and all of that noise. But when it comes down to it, every time you investigate one of these claims at the root of it, it turns out to be a guy said, and that's the sum total of uh, of the evidence we have for it. But you, you mentioned something interesting there about your, your the way you described history and, and piecing things together and trying to give a, an honest account of what you think might have happened. If we look at that in the reverse, what what's the field of history going to look like in the future, if that's not some weird oxymoron because like you say we don't have concrete records of things that happened years ago but you know in, in 200 years 500 years maybe a thousand years bar some sort of apocalyptic event someone will be able to see via my digital imprint what i had for dinner on any given day perhaps or you know it seems like we will have a fully constructed digital archive of almost everything that's happened at any point how, how would that how will that inform the field of, of history just as a just as a discipline yeah, it'll be, well, there are two ways to take this. In, in one way, the digitization of everything might be bad for history because some records might not survive. So for instance, when Walter Isaacson was writing the biography of Steve Jobs, this is like one of the most popular biographies ever. He talks about how his biography of Einstein in some ways was a lot easier to get information because everything was written down. Paper doesn't really go bad. You just store it in an archive and it sits there. A digital archive is hard to maintain. The emails that Steve Jobs was sending at the beginning of his career, Walter Isaacson couldn't really access many of those because he didn't have the technology to access them. You know, it, it was all so obsolete, you couldn't get to them anymore. So for Einstein, paper doesn't go obsolete. Paper just sits there. But these emails, they were hard to access because they're so obsolete. You don't have the technology to, you know, get to where they're actually at. So that, that would be one problem for the historian in the future. Technology is going to be so different than are we going to be able to access what we were actually doing? On the other hand, 
there is so much more information now than ever, even with podcasts and interviews and social media. As, as long as the historian is going to be able to access that in the future, they're going to have a greater insight into the individual lives of people than we do of basically anyone in the past. Now, that's going to be really hard for any individual historian because there's just too much information. It's information overload. How can you possibly make sense of this? This might be useful for some kind of algorithm that's able to you know, look at all that information and analyze broad trends that are happening. So it, it would be almost like looking at Google trends. You can look on Google and see the rate at which people are searching different key phrases. And that indicates whether something's becoming more popular over time or less popular. And that can actually tell you a lot. Well, we might be able to do that for a person's individual life based on, you know, what they're searching or, you know, who they're talking to or what kind of interactions they're having with online. You might be able to have like a digital psychological profile for the historian in the future, which would be really useful. Now, at the same time, it would re require some kind of technology to help you do that. But that presumably is at the disposable of the historian of the future. It's basically at the disposable of social media companies today. They have a psychological profile of you, and that's how they tailor their ads to target you. So when the historian has access to that information, it'll give them a deep insight into who this person was. Um, there still are questions of, well, you know, who's who's giving them the, you know, the authority or data to look at all this stuff about you. It seems almost too intimate, but after a certain period of time, historians are always interested in going to the most intimate parts of people's lives anyway, I guess. So great answer. I, I didn't plan on asking you that, uh, but you, you gave me a lot there. So good. Uh, I, I mean, just out of interest in terms of, I mean, you mentioned like paper there and physical artifacts and things like that. They, they play a huge role in, in history, the written word. Are, are you, how is your digital versus analog balance in your life? Are you someone who will only buy physical books? Do you buy digital books? Do you have a nice blend of things? I'm a bit of a snob when it comes to movie. I like physical media. I still I collect, I still buy vinyl, for instance, but I also love my my gadgets at the same time. And I'm a bit worried that, you know, music and movies that I enjoy so much, having a digitized version of that and it's suddenly being snatched away from me or even... I mean, this is a, a another thing that's especially important in terms of history. People are now retroactively editing digital versions of films removing you know things that are probably considered problematic nowadays snips here corrections there it's very and the only way you can really access original art as it was intended was a physical copy of it is that is that something you feel that could um affect history in a way people kind of you know uh, changing the record in that way to give us a false perspective yeah, well, again, that kind of has a good and a bad to it for the historian. The bad would be if if some original record is changed and we don't know about it, that means that we don't know that we're being duped, kind of. It's like a forgery. Somebody's forged this thing and we don't realize that it's altered. Now, at the same time, if we do know that the original was different and then somebody changed it to what we have, that's great for the historian because not only then do we know what the original was, but we know the thing that somebody wanted to change. And that tells the historian a lot. Why would somebody want to change this particular thing? It not only gives us insight into the original thing, but into the people who wanted to change it. You know, so from a historian's perspective, you want that. That would be great if people start changing things and we have a record of it because we know the things that people are interested in changing. Well, that gives us a lot of insight <laughs> into that culture and why they would do that. I suppose it's like hacking the genitals off Greek statues, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's something. I mean, just to keep on the, the slight, to keep on the topic of movies a little bit. There's all. There's. It's been 
pretty widespread throughout many films over the years. This idea of somebody being captured and tortured and somebody comes along with a syringe and administers some sort of truth serum and they, they give the information away, they give the game up. And I always thought this was some sort of kind of high concept sci-fi trope that didn't really exist in any sort of tangible manner in the real world but obviously like you, you mentioned at the start of this, this the conversation the cia and various other intelligence agencies have, have played around with the idea of truth serums and things like that how, what kind of things are we talking about here how far have they got in terms of efficacy yeah this is one of the big chapters of my book is about truth drugs in particular um so the oss Stanley Lovell especially, was interested, as all intelligence agencies are, in finding a way to get the truth out of people you're interrogating. You know, if you have an enemy spy, you want to know what they think and what they know. So how do you get that out of them? One method historically has been torture. But torture is not that effective because if you torture someone, they'll say anything to make the torture stop. So it's not that reliable. But what if you had a drug that you could give to this person and it would like lower their inhibitions and prevent them from inventing new ideas? Then you would have a truth serum. You would have something that could guarantee that what they said was the truth. This is a drug that the OSS was after during World War II. In order to find out whether this kind of thing was possible, the OSS started testing a bunch of different drugs. Um, one of the main ones they tested was THC acetate. This is like the main psychoactive ingredient in marijuana, basically marijuana. They're getting people high, but they start giving this to people. In fact, Stanley Lovell hires a person from the Bureau of Narcotics named George White. He's a narcotics officer. He's supposed to be arresting people on the street who are dealing drugs. Instead, Stanley Lovell hires him to start dealing drugs to people on the street to see <laughs> if it gets them talking. So George White has a lot of criminal contacts. So he gets some THC acetate, he injects it into a cigarette, and he invites over a criminal contact. One of the main ones is this guy, August Del Gracio. He's a gangster in New York. George White hands this cigarette to August Del Gracio, hoping that he'll smoke it and his inhibitions will lower and he'll start revealing illegal things that he otherwise never would have revealed. If this is the case, then George White can tell Stanley Lovell, hey, I think you're onto something with this THC because it got this criminal to start divulging stuff to me that he shouldn't have. Now, it turns out August Del Gracio smokes this cigarette. He becomes what George White says, obviously high. And he starts talking. He starts talking about murders that he had been involved in. He starts talking about senators and people in the state Senate who he knows have taken bribes to pass certain laws. And so George White thinks, whoa, this is actually working. It's getting him to lower his inhibitions. So he tells Stanley Lovell, they get pretty excited. Now, Stanley Lovell tried to use these truth drugs and at least one case on a prisoner of war during World War II, it was a submarine commander. Now, that didn't kind of turn out the way Stanley Lovell wanted to. Um, but this truth drug program had a very long and interesting legacy, a repercussion. During the Cold War, the CIA established a program that I mentioned earlier, MKUltra, this kind of mind control program to determine whether mind control is possible. The chemist who's put in charge of that program is a guy named Sidney Gottlieb. Sidney Gottlieb, when he's put in charge, doesn't know what to do. He's told basically, start this mind control program and see what you can find. Is it possible to get people to reveal their secrets under interrogation? Is it possible to take control of their actions so that we can almost program them to commit an assassination or steal some you know, information, conduct espionage? Is that possible? 
Sidney Gottlieb doesn't know how to even start going about it. So what does he do? He goes to the archives, like a historian would do. He goes to the archives and he looks at the files of the OSS. As he's browsing through those files, he happens upon the files of George White and Stanley Lovell working with this THC acetate, this truth drug program. In those files, Sidney Gottlieb finds the way that he's going to conduct this mind control program. They were giving people this drug to make them speak the truth. That's what Sidney Gottlieb now decides to do. However, by the time that he decides to do it, the drugs had changed. THC acetate was kind of obsolete by that point. It wasn't really working as intended, but a new drug had come on the market. Well, not really on the market, but a new drug had been invented, LSD. And that's what Sidney Gottlieb really gets interested in. So he starts doing a bunch of LSD experiments, which is why MKUltra is kind of infamous now because it was doing these on prisoners and uh, prisons, on patients and hospitals, on all kinds of people, on random people on the street that George White, who Stanley Lovell hired to do this again, once he saw his name in the OSS files, Stanley Lovell hired George White to slip this LSD to just unwitting random American citizens. That's insane. And I don't know, I don't know if this is related, but I, I seem to remember watching some very old black and white footage of experimentations with LSD. I don't know if that was related to the, the CIA or the OSS, uh, or whether it's declassified or not, but I seem to remember it was be um a woman and she was given this drug and then asked how she felt and what she could see. And it seemed to me, although, you know, she seemed to be having a good time, she didn't really make a whole lot of sense. It wasn't particularly coherent in conveying the experience she was having. So I'm assuming that LSD is not the be all end all in terms of getting people to fess up the truth. No, no. Uh, what it turned out to be more useful for is what they were trying to do to Castro to make someone seem incompetent. So if you yeah. slip them LSD and they seem crazy, okay, well, then that just lowers people's trust in them. But you know, in order to actually get them to guarantee that they would say the truth, that's, that's probably not going to happen. What, what you said, though, is interesting, though, because it brings up a good point about MKUltra. A lot of people will see that LSD experiments were done during the Cold War, say the 50s or 60s, and reason that, well, of course, that must be associated with the CIA because they were doing that all over the place. That's not always the case, though. There were a lot, a lot of independent researchers not affiliated with the CIA who were also doing basically the same experiments. They're conducting LSD experiments on random people, on their patients who don't know that they're getting this LSD. So just because something is done as an LSD experiment doesn't immediately indicate it was part of this MKUltra program. There are a lot of independent researchers who are also doing that. And this ties back into your point about technology and UAPs and whether we have that, at any given time, it's not as if one physicist or group of physicists or who have chemists are so far beyond the others in order to create this advanced technology. You know, all of this knowledge is being created in a community. You know, it takes a Science is a cumulative enterprise, and so it's built on other ideas. It's not that one person could just have some completely advanced knowledge without anyone else knowing. That's just not really how science works. And so, you know, the same is going on with this LSD stuff. Just as someone's not going to be creating this spacecraft, you know, that makes us think that there are aliens out there or whatever it is, someone's not going to be creating some LSD truth drug without other people also investigating similar things. Science is cumulative and it works in a community. So, you know, there's always going to be 
people who are working on the same thing. One of the big problems the CIA has during the Cold War when it's creating its technology for its undercover agents, like secret cameras and all kinds of stuff, is that the consumer market, just the free market, is creating it faster than the CIA can, and it's putting it on the shelves. So the CIA develops this technology, and it spent millions of dollars doing it, <laughs> and then a month later, some independent contractor does it, and is putting it on the shelves of some store. You know, So there, there's always a race. It's not that one person can independently do something and no one else will ever be able to achieve it. No. I mean, if one person does it, other people will be able to do it. That's a really interesting point I hadn't considered, because my, my perspective used to be, or usually is, if the private sector has some amazing advanced piece of technology, then the government must have something that's light years ahead of it. But what you're saying is the inverse is often true. It can be true. Now, it's it, it, it's not necessarily the case that the, the private uh, market will always beat the government. I, there are, I'm sure, military technologies. I know military technologies that are well more advanced of, than anything that the consumer market can is doing. But they rely on ideas and scientific principles and other technologies that everyone knows about. You know, it's not that they're inventing some new kind of physics that can now do something crazy. Every, well, everyone knows about the physics that a particular thing is rely, relying on. It's just that they had a better manufacturing technique and were able to do it a little bit quicker. Yes, it's not like their, their periodic table has some secret elements on it that the rest of us don't know about. We're all kind of working from the same rules. Um, our uh, producer Ash has asked an interesting question, and I'm hoping this means more to you than me. But he's asked, have you looked into Gottlieb's ties to California and Charles Manson? Uh, Tom Neal, Tom O'Neill rather, covers it in his book Chaos, but he's yet to establish a link between the MK Ultra programs. There's a lot, there's a lot going on there. I didn't expect Charles Manson to be thrown in. Yeah, that this is a really good book. Tom O'Neill's book Chaos. It came out not that long ago, but it, it's mostly focused, I guess, on Charles Manson, but also the ties between this MK Ultra program and some other researchers that were research that was going on at the same place. One of the main researchers was Jolly West, Lewis Jolly West, um, and he did have some ties to Gottlieb and this MK Ultra project. The book is really good. First of all, because the writing is done so well. It's told from the perspective kind of of Tom O'Neill on the search for all this information. So it's almost like a detective story, like you're on the search with him trying to find what he's uncovering. The The disappointing part is what you said. He doesn't really make a connection. He he kind of tells the story of Charles Manson and he tells the story of MK Ultra, but they never like intertwine that much. It's like, okay, you have these two stories that are going on in about the same time and place, but there's no... I, when I read it, I just thought, okay, well, what is the connection here? Uh, you know, there, there's drugs involved in both of them, but, you know, there's just, I don't know. I, I didn't see that he actually made that connection. So I, I've looked into that quite a bit, but I, I also don't see a connection. I don't see how you connect Charles Manson to, you know, MK Ultra. Now, there are, like I said, other experiments that are going on that involve LSD that involve other famous people. You know, the Unabomber was a part of an experiment that had to do with, you know, drugs and interrogations and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of people use this as evidence that, oh, look, the CIA was involved in, you know, giving him drugs and they turned him into the Unabomber. But like I said before, a lot of independent researchers are doing these exact same experiments that the CIA is doing. So just because someone is involved in a drug experiment in the Cold War doesn't mean the CIA is behind it. Just a lot of researchers happen to be doing LSD experiments, too. It's, it's 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 a minefield because I, I suppose 
where where do you draw the line? Because like we've we've established, and you know more than anyone, the CIA are responsible for a lot of shady shenanigans, and maybe there are things we don't know uh, about. So, I mean, how 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 do you draw the line at like you know, obviously, yes, like bat bombs, yes, exploding cigars, yes, all, all these crazy crazy things, and then somebody will say, you know, assassinate assassination of JFK, and they for a second you have to go, oh, hang a second there. I mean, I'm just assuming. I don't know what you believe on that specifically, but how do you how do you draw that line between conspiracy theory, as it's termed, people, you know, inventing stuff or embellishing things versus genuine attempts at carrying out conspiracies? Yeah, yeah. Um, historians are empiricists, at least I think. Historians are empiricists. They rely on actual, you know, evidence. Like, I, I've got to have a transcript of somebody saying something before I can actually quote them having said that, you know, yeah. we're empiricists. And again, historians rely on the most plausible explanation. Now, we can disagree on what might be the most plausible explanation, but those are kind of the two bedrocks of history, as I see it, empiricism and plaus or probability. Um, and so when it, when it comes to like conspiracy theories, there's a common tactic to say that a lot of them are not provable but you also can't prove them wrong, you know? So it's, it, it's like non-falsifiable, but also not provable. So if someone says to me, well, the CIA is obviously conducting experiments still, and they're turning people into lizards, or I mean, you can make anything up. Well, I would say, well, what's the evidence of that? And they would say, oh, well, I can't show it to you because it's classified. Okay, so from my perspective, I mean, that actually does make some kind of sense because, yeah, I mean, if this is classified, I won't be able to see the evidence. But then... What I don't like about it, it's also non-falsifiable. How could I ever prove you wrong? You can never show me the evidence because it's classified. And so what? You could say anything and it'd be classified. Now, I'm sure there are experiments that are still classified that we don't know about. But I mean, if we don't have any empirical reason to believe that they exist in the first place, it doesn't really help the historian to just speculate about what they might be until it comes to light. I'm not really in favor of just speculating on, oh, they're doing this. I'd rather wait till empirical evidence comes to light and then we can show that they're doing this instead of just saying, well, they must be hiding it behind the veil of secrecy. Well, they could be hiding anything behind the veil of secrecy. And since it's non-falsifiable, I might as well just not even deal with that argument. Yeah, I know that's a great point. And I think, you know, I think engendering the idea of first logical principles to people is really helpful. And I suppose it depends on the size of the claim as well. I mean, perhaps it's Carl Sagan who said something along the lines of extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. I think it's popularized a bit later by Christopher Hitchens, often mm -hmm. repeated it. And I suppose it depends on the size of the claim, doesn't it? Because I, I think something that's an extraordinary claim, the size of, you know, the, the American state have, you know, secret alien bodies and ships, That that's an extraordinary claim, which would require a lot of evidence and on the flip side of that as well i don't know i mean you, you're probably best place to answer this given your investigations into history and looking at the record humans seem pretty bad at keeping secrets we we the the we seem to skew generally towards incompetence in, a, in that area i i feel and that, just sorry go ahead please oh, i was gonna say no that that is a good point because one of the issues that i I run into when I talk to people, especially about MK Ultra, which is what I've been kind of working on lately. So that's why it's been, you know, a big topic of conversation for me. Um, one of the issues I run into is that people will claim, well, Sidney Gottlieb destroyed all the files when he left the CIA. And he did. In 1973, he set fire. He incinerated his personal files that were talking about all these MK Ultra subprojects. It turns out 
that later archivists found a bunch of boxes of files. So they still, we still have actual files to go based off and interviews and depositions and whatever. But people can point to that and say, well, he destroyed all these files. Therefore, we don't know what was all going on. And that is completely true. We don't know all that was going on. But that kind of covers up the fact that we know so much about what was going on. Not only have archivists found all these other thousands and thousands of files, but we have interviews, we have depositions, the Senate and the House launched investigations into this thing. You know, we have books and memoirs and autobiographies written by people who were involved in it. We have the autobiographies and memoirs of patients who are the victims of this thing. We have letters and diaries that people kept. We have so many convergent lines of evidence lining up to what actually happened. So to just point at the fact that, oh, some files were destroyed, therefore we can never know. I feel like, no, we can know. We can know like a whole bunch about this thing. And the stuff that we're missing is maybe a small percentage of what actually happened. So we know 95% of what happened. We're missing that 5%. And there's no indication in all of that 95% that the other 5% is anything extraordinary. There's no indication that it involved anything, you know, telepathic or UAP or blah, blah, blah. That 5%, it was just the same stuff that we have in the other 95%. It's just we happen to not have it now. You know, so uh, again, this is the empirical historian and me relying on the actual documents that we do have. And just because we don't have some doesn't mean that was anything more extraordinary. It just means those are the ones that happened to be incinerated that we didn't recover. But we have so many convergent lines of evidence coming from all kinds of different sources. Yeah, it reminds me that, that I can't remember the, the adage about, you know, black areas on maps before we travel the world. And you could just put a pin in it and say, you know, here be here be dragons or something like that, undiscovered blank spots and uh, inserting extraordinary extraordinary things in there. I'm just going to read something else from Ray J because they, they came in hot on the uh, poisonous underpants theory before, which you kind of half corroborated with the, the swimsuit. Uh, they've said again, uh, CIA even tested nerve agents in the New York underground. Gas inside a light bulb smashed as the train approached to test how fast it spread. Is that something you're aware of? That's like domestic terrorism. Surely, yeah, I'm I'm not aware of the nerve agent itself. I, I've never come across the idea that they actually release actual nerve agents. Something like that, very similar, did happen though. But as far as I know, it didn't involve nerve agents. And again, this could be something that I just don't know. But the CIA did conduct a lot of experiments on major American cities to release certain kinds of bacteria over the cities to see how it spread. Just in case during the Cold War, the Soviet Union attacked us with a biological weapon and released like anthrax over a city, the CIA wanted to know how that's going to spread with the air currents. And so the CIA got an innocuous strain of bacteria, basically like yeast, like it's not going to cause any harm, but they took this bacteria bacteria and they released it over cities just to see how the winds currents would take it so they would know in case the soviet union does this to us we know how it's going to spread over our city now again i don't know anything about actually releasing nerve agents into the public even though tests with nerve agents were definitely done but not in public as far as i know but there were these other spray tests on american cities yeah ray j seems to know a little bit too much for my liking i think they should stay around later for further questioning but i mean it, it brings up this question about all these tests and trying things and the dangers inherit just in that in terms of uncharted territory you know testing things designed to harm in a controlled manner i think uh, swinging back to oppenheimer i think the entire uh in on that film the entire you know point of it for audiences really the big hook 
is the fact that before they pressed the button on that Trinity test, they couldn't guarantee that it wouldn't essentially just set the world on fire. Now, that's that's crazy to think about, but that's the kind of power a lot of these agencies have in their, their testing. Are you worried, really, that something may, you know, they may open Pandora's box on something and start a climate catastrophe or, you know, make someone irreversible damage, which could have planetary uh, ramifications? Um, I'm not worried in the sense that I think there's one... Well, okay, I'll rephrase that. There might be one button that could do that, and I think it's like the president launching all of our nuclear weapons because the president has the overall authority to do that. So if the president really wanted to launch a nuclear weapon, he or she in the future could. Now, that that's the one main one button thing I'm worried about. Otherwise, I, I don't think there's like one button that the CIA is going to create that's going to you know cause all kinds of worldwide catastrophe. Now, you mentioned Oppenheimer, and I saw the movie uh, last night, and I thought it was pretty good. And there were actually a lot of good historical tidbits. But the the thing about setting the atmosphere on fire, they did kind of talk about that and joke about that. But it was really clear really soon to these physicists that that wasn't actually going to happen. They kind of played it up in the film for dramatic effect, but they, they kind of knew that's not going to happen. Um, so, yeah, as far as the one button press and we destroy the world, I think the only thing would be launching nuclear weapons. Otherwise, we're in for a slow death, you know, through, I don't know, releasing too much CO2 or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, does, does the amount of nuclear weapons on the planet cause concern for you? It keeps me agitated once in a while when I think about it. It's almost like we're in, you know, you know the, the, the whole... Thing about Chekhov's gun, if you show a gun in the first act, it needs to be fired in the third act. I just feel that these nuclear weapons exist to be detonated at some point. It seems inevitable that that will happen. We've, you know, we we seem to rely on mutually assured destruction. That often really depends on the ideologies of the states who have uh, these weapons. Do you think there is a possibility of another nuclear launch uh, in in our future, perhaps? I'm keeping uh, it nice, I, nice and cheery, yeah. John. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think it is possible. The scary thing to me is when I was in grad school, I was studying, especially the Cold War, and looking at the Cuban Missile Crisis, and John F. Kennedy said he thought that it was about a one in three chance that this would have led to a nuclear kind of uh, exchange between the Soviet Union and the United States. A one in three chance? Well, we already went through that once. Like, I don't want to test a one in three chance again, you know? So I, I, I think it's possible that that could happen. What I think is more likely than that even is that there's going to be a malicious actor at least the head of like the u.s or even i don't even think vladimir putin would launch like a first nuclear strike against the u.s what's more scary is that there's an accident that someone misinterprets as a bad actor so mm. we accidentally set off you know some some nuclear bomb or it drops out of a plane which has happened over north carolina during the cold war a nuclear a hydrogen bomb just drops out of a plane unexpectedly it just dropped like the, the, it, it malfunctioned. Please talk I'm, about that more before you make your next point. What? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the uh, nuclear accidents have happened a lot. The, there, there's a book called Command and Control by Eric Schlosser, the journalist. Yes. And he, he talks about all these, you know, there was there was a, a nuclear missile that um, the silo that it was in caught fire, you know, with a nuclear missile armed inside. So it's like th this happens more than people want to think about. I, I think I think it's more disturbing or, or more probable that an accident will happen that 
gets someone to overreact. And that overreaction is going to cause a chain reaction because someone overreacts. Now the, the person they overreacted against is going to retaliate. And you have to retaliate bigger and bigger and bigger. And it leads to this vicious cycle. So I, I think that's more probable than some malicious actor actually doing something bad. The only exception I would think and hope maybe, I hope it doesn't happen, but the, the main exception would be a terrorist acquiring a dirty bomb or you know nerve agents or something and releasing it in a city. And maybe also that would be interpreted as an attack by, a I don't know, someone else. And then we would retaliate against the wrong person. That leads to this escalating spiral. I, I, again, I hope that doesn't happen, but I could see the possibility that would be probably more probable than like the president ordering a first strike against some other country. Okay, so now I'm going to have less sleep, uh, John. But I suppose I mean you'll be uniquely placed to answer this because you know you're a historian, and I suppose and I, I, obviously you can tell me if I'm wrong here. But looking back in history, seems to be uh, it's, it's certainly where humans are concerned. Seems to be a story of conflict, various conflicts, and I, I seem to think that in a way there's this feeling uh, in in my generation, especially that you know we we look back at say the Holocaust, for instance, and think how. Is that even possible that could happen? That could never happen now. Even when there are still people alive who went through that now. we Humans seem to think it's almost like a video game, like we've got to a save point now where we can't regress back to where we were. And I mean, is it true this idea of history repeats? And if so, uh, when we bring advanced technology into the equation, is it, I'm trying to keep this cheerful again, is it a certainty that humans will eventually wipe themselves out just by their own folly and their own conflicts? I mean, that is a possibility. I hope it's not. As regards to the idea that history repeats, I do think there's some truth to that. Of course, specific events never repeat because history is a one-off. You know, you can never repeat the exact thing that happened. But the 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 thing that's continuous throughout history is human nature. So when humans are kind of put into similar situations, they're probably going to react in similar ways because they have the same basic human nature. We all have the same wants and desires. We all want to have love. We all, you know, want to uh, to have status. We all, you know, want to be respected. We all want money and to be rich and blah, 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 blah. So with the same basic human nature, when people get into similar situations, they're probably going to react a similar way. That being said, humans are actually pretty good so far at coming up with ways to uh, kind of limit the desires that they have or limit the actions that their desires will lead them to. One thing that Steven Pinker talks in his book, uh, um, The Better Angels of Our Nature, is this is kind of the reason for governments. You know, he talks about governments are a decrease on violence. When you don't have a government overseeing you, Everything is just retribution. If someone attacks you, you're going to attack them, and that leads to the vicious cycle of violence. Although when you have an independent arbiter called a government, and you both agree, all parties agree that this government has the ultimate interpretation of who did right or wrong and the ability to punish someone, you kind of end that vicious cycle of violence. Because if someone does something to me, I don't retaliate against them. I go to the law, and the law then punishes them, and it takes me out of it, so then they can't retaliate against me whenever it's their turn, you know? So... I think we're good at implementing these kind of concepts to limit the worst angels of our nature. This is something that I actually kind of end my book on. I talk about Stanley Lovell, uh, this main character, this chemist. After the war, Stanley Lovell th thought that it was a good idea that the United States dropped these atomic bombs on Japan. He thought that, you know, toward the end of the war, 
Either we're going to invade Japan and we're going to lose a lot of people, and so is Japan, or we can drop these atomic bombs and end it as soon as possible. Years later, um, he and his grandson got in an argument about this, and I interviewed his grandson for this book. They got in an argument. His grandson was saying, well, that's just one part of the equation, ending the war. There are other pieces of context to include that you're not considering. What about the precedent that it sets for future wars? The fact that we use these bombs, doesn't it now kind of say to other countries, it's okay for you to use them too? We don't have the moral high ground to stand on to say that you can't use these. So he's he's throwing all these arguments at Stanley Lovell. And you know uh, his grandson is basically saying, we've opened Pandora's box. Now that we've used them, we're not going to be able to close it. And Stanley Lovell, all he responds with is, we're an inventive people. We'll figure it out. You know, it's a little bit dismissive, but I think a degree of that is true. We are an inventive pe people. And just as we can invent the technologies that will lead to our demise, we can also invent the systems that prevent the technologies from leading to our demise. And so I just hope we can stay one step ahead. I don't know if we can, but there is still the hope that we could. So, I mean, when all said and done, then given your investigations, would you say you're quite optimistic in regards to humanity? I'm pretty optimistic. I tend to be an optimistic person in general. I mean, there there are things that could wipe us out, but it, uh, I'm I'm optimistic. You know, trends seem to be going in good directions, even though it might not seem that way. Uh, you know, you know the 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 main uh, kind of thing that drives the news is if it bleeds, it leads. So every day you're always inundated with the worst things that happen on any given day, which kind of blinds us to the larger trends that actually happen. You know, yeah. child mortality is down, you know, disease is down, infant deaths are down, violence typically murders are down. You, you know, I mean, this is over hundreds and hundreds of years, but the trends seem to be going in the right direction. So I like the trends. Now, the scary part is that trends don't mean anything if you have one person who can destroy the world with the click of a button. So it doesn't matter if we live in the best world possible if, that, if there's that one nefarious actor with power. Um, now, that could be the case, but I'd rather have the trends going in the right direction and that happen than the trends going in the wrong direction. So at least we're going in the right direction with the trends. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I'm glad you referenced Steven Pinker there because he, he chronicles that really well in his book. Obviously, the media reporting and things we see day in, day out and having this supercomputer in our pocket that pings as everything that happens gives us a kind of skewed perspective on where we are. People are always convinced they live in the most violent, deprived, depraved era ever. And they, obviously, the opposite's the opposite's true if you follow the trends. I suppose my, my last question for you is um, who keeps an eye on the CIA? Who Who prevents them from going too far if they, i mean sounds silly to ask them what's you know ask what's too far when they're already strapping bombs to well the us has been strapping bombs to bats etc et but how, how do how are they prevented from going too far who do they answer to uh well this changes over time during the cold war especially in the 50s and 60s it was basically no one the cia was its own watchdog so it had some internal measures of oversight there was an inspector general within the cia whose job it was to make sure that nobody broke the law but the inspector general didn't really have any power. If he were, were to speak out, he would just be fired. And so, well, you have this watchdog in, in, you know, legally, but in practicality, he can't really do anything. There were a couple other measures like that within the CIA, but they didn't work that well, which is what led or allowed programs like MKUltra to happen. In 1975, the Senate Church Committee orders an investigation, conducts an investigation of the intelligence community after a lot of these revelations come out, like MKUltra and the Watergate scandal and, you know, the CIA spying on anti-war protesters to the Vietnam War. 
So after all this comes out, the Senate launches this investigation and they find all of these abuses that had happened in the past. And then they try to reform oversight of the intelligence community. In theory, the watchdog of the CIA is Congress. That's kind of the separation of powers that the U.S. system is built on. The CIA is part of the executive branch. Congress is the legislative branch. So in theory, the legislative branch has the oversight capabilities over the executive branch. So several laws were implemented after 1975, like the creation of, uh, in the Senate, a committee on intelligence, and in the House, a committee on intelligence that the CIA has to report to and inform what they're doing. Now, there was also a, a law passed that basically says that the president has to approve all covert actions. So the president has to personally approve this. This eliminates his or her plausible deniability. No longer can a president then say, oh, I didn't know the CIA was mm. doing that. You have to approve that stuff. Now, in reality, even though those laws were passed, they weren't really followed. Okay, so, you know, you have internal oversight of the CIA that failed. You had ex uh, legislative oversight of the CIA that failed for a while. That's what led or at least allowed things like the Iran-Contra scandal, the uh, enhanced interrogation, torture during after the Iraq war. Now, after that, there are other reforms that are passed. Now, so to, to answer your question in short, who oversees the CIA? In theory, it's Congress. Congress needs to oversee the CIA and implement stronger reforms that allow them to oversee what's going on. Now, at the same time, the American people should hold Congress accountable for holding the CIA accountable. Ultimate responsibility falls to the American people. So, you know, hopefully the American people can either vote for or, you know, implement a different kind of voting system that allows for Congress people who are actually um, serious about their job as overseers, because that's what they are. Well, John, we've just run out of time. This is a fascinating discussion. I've, I've really enjoyed speaking to you. I feel like I could speak about this for another couple of hours, so I will pick up your book for sure. But I, I want to thank you for coming on uh, and speaking to me. I have learned so much. A lot of it terrifying, I rather wouldn't have known. But I, I, I'm glad you've come on to speak about it. It's been fascinating. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It was a great talk. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. Take care.